Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Well, and uh, maybe come June we'll have what seems like a miracle or would have felt like a miracle even, say, a week ago because uh, maybe in June, likely in June, sounds like in June, uh, we are indeed going to have some live sports. And, you know, Pinder, we talked about it, how, you know, and we even talked a little bit about it with Chris Johnston yesterday. If there's going to be one sport that comes back before anybody else, it's probably going to be golf. And sounds like in the middle of June we're going to be talking about seeing some live golf in a revised 2020 schedule. But that's not that. That's less than two months away. We might be getting some live sports. So that that that's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, even if it is just one sport that has somewhat concrete plans of returning. Uh, yeah, and not a big surprise. This is kind of in the lines of what we expected. The PGA a week or ten days ago released their tentative summer schedule. They left themselves some room to add. They've added, and we've said all along, the ability to socially distance in golf. A whole lot easier than most other sports. Mm-hmm. And it's a sport that doesn't rely on gate revenue in the sense that, sure, the people running those events want that revenue, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the PGA who sets the schedule. Purses remain the same whether people are in the gates or not. Um, yeah, so I'm excited for it. But again, uh, two months away, that's almost double the length of the sports apocalypse already. We're at day 35. <laughs> we'll probably be around day 90-something when uh, the Colonial gets going if – Indeed, it does, as uh, the PGA is uh, telling us yesterday. Now, uh, Canadian Open, the RBC Canadian Open, has been cancelled uh, for 2020. That is part of the revised schedule as well. But yes, uh, the June 11th to 14th um, is when things are set to be returning. If golf does return, it's it's just that was the first somewhat concrete news that we got that maybe sports was uh, able to return. Uh, on top of that, today uh, we found out news that uh, you know, in from the states where Dr. Fauci. Um, the United States top infectious disease expert uh, said that there was a way for sports to return and if that was going to be the case it would have to be with no fans in stadiums and with players quarantining in hotels Uh, that's the other piece of uh, somewhat sports related news that we got on I guess over the last 24 hours so uh, some some light at the end of the tunnel if you're a sports fan Uh, and now we just hope that there gets more and more light as we continue to plow through this thing as we welcome you to Pinder and Steinberg on a Wednesday afternoon Pinder from Shea Pinder. My name is Pat Steinberg here in uh, my home office. We've got a very jam-packed show for you. It's a short show. We're done at 5 today, and we're going to kick off the program by talking some Flames hockey and a whole lot more with Calgary Flames assistant coach Ryan Huska, who joins the program this afternoon. Mr. Huska, how are you? How are things going? Uh, not too bad, guys. And yourselves? Doing all right. We're... Uh... We're working our way through this thing. Yeah. Well, I think that's the the common term. Everybody's probably trying to stay sane during this time, but it's it's nice to see most people that we know are all healthy and well, and that's the most important thing. What has this um, What has this last month or so consisted of for you as an assistant coach in the NHL? You know, lately, or well, I should say over the last little while, we've had some assignments that Jeff has given us in, in regards to doing a little bit of pre-scout work of, of potential 
opponents and some of the teams that we're going to be facing or think we're going to be facing whenever, if the schedule does resume. So we, we've been doing a little bit of, of prep work for what may be coming ahead, um, and we're trying to play out a few different scenarios. But when this all first started, I, it went through, for me, about five to, uh, I guess, seven days where it, it was a, a really strange time, not really knowing what to do with your time. Um, you didn't know if you are coming or going most days, and then I finally had to get myself on an actual schedule where – um, I would get up at a certain time in the morning and I would do something for a certain time and then I would move on with my day that way. And since I've kind of taken on that type of schedule, uh, we're able to keep things almost as normal as you possibly can. But it, it's been an adjustment, that's for sure. When you're going 100 miles an hour and then you come to nothing, um, yeah. it, it was a real challenge for sure. And I'm sure you guys have felt the same. 100%, no doubt about it. And I, the we, we had Jeff on last week, uh, and, and he was talking about the, the video assignments and how you guys are talking once every four or five days. You guys all go your separate ways, do those assignments, come back and reconvene on that. What what does that look like? I know you can't necessarily give us details, but, but tell us a little bit more about some of those conversations and those assignments. Yeah, well, like, for example, let's say I might have St. Louis as a team that I'll sit down and watch, and we'll we'll try to break down a bunch of their games and look at things in their game that um, we may like and things that we can potentially steal down the road. Um, so if there are certain things that we want to talk about in regards to how they play, things that we like, things that we don't like, those are all things that we can touch on. So if we get ourselves into a situation down the road, whenever we do come back, if we feel there is something that we can bring in that another team does really well, um, we have some video examples of it, and we can have some really good conversations of some of the really good things that other teams do that we might want to incorporate into what we're trying to get across here. Mm-hmm. Good to have, I would imagine, good to have that communication and be able to get together as a coaching staff every few days just to kind of keep some sort of normalcy, hey? Yeah, you have some conversations, hey, and and we're no different than the players. There's the text threads that go on with some jokes and some of the funny memes that go back and forth. Um, So we have a chance to to laugh and, and joke with each other a little bit too, but you also have the opportunity to talk a little bit hockey, and that's really what... Um, you know, sometimes you forget that we're still working right now. It's just the situation totally different than anybody's been a part of. So we try to keep the conversation going in regards to, you know, what we want to be like when we come back. And really at the end of the day to make sure we're prepared for whatever that may, that may look like, um, you know, what type of training camp it may look like, mm-hmm. um, how many people do you want there, all sorts of different things. And it just, I think by getting a little conversation going, it, it forces you to put some ideas in your mind so that when that time does come, we're going to be ready and we'll have a plan. Does it feel like this is just a year two as an NHL coach for you? Because it's been a uh, rather eventful first couple of years in the league. Yeah. Last year, it's funny, Pat, that you say that last year, (laughs) it, it seemed like everything was easy until the end of the year. Um, Our team was playing well, well, right out of the gate. Um, we had a lot of success. A lot of players had um, great years where they had um, personal bests, and it seemed like we were finding ways to win all the time. And it was it was coming pretty easy until, as we know, the end of the year where we where we ran into some troubles towards um, the latter portion of our season and into playoffs. And then this year, um, there's been something pretty much all the time that we've had to deal with. So it, it's been like two totally different seasons. Um, 
but I guess what you can say is you you can take all the things that have gone on and you can you can put them in your memory bank and there's a lot of learning experiences that we have gone through this year and I think for this year's team I think at the end of the day it's going to make us a better group and that's I think why we're all hoping that we do get an opportunity to come back because we have faced quite a bit of adversity this adversity this year and I think that's going to make us stronger down the road. Flames assistant coach Ryan Huska is with us, and and you you know you talk about this being your second year in the NHL, but there were there were four years of professional hockey that led up to that as a coach, a head coach in the American League before getting this shot in the NHL. But but take me back to when you first made the jump into the coaching ranks and and you joined the Kelowna Rockets, um, going back you know a good good chunk of time ago now you were still uh, you were still pretty fresh and and young and uh, you you made the decision to get into the coaching ranks at that point did did the NHL seem like a realistic goal to you? Um, I, I think once I started to get into coaching, I, I guess you can say full time coaching. Um, then it was something that was was you know brought back into my mind where it was something that I wanted to do and I wanted to eventually get to the NHL on a full-time basis um, when I first quit playing and I was helping out with some of the minor hockey teams in Kelowna no I wasn't thinking about that at all but um, after some conversations with my wife and realizing that it's something we wanted to try for a few years to see if we could have success with it um, the more you got into it, the more you realized pretty quickly that it was still a passion of mine and I wanted to take it as far as I could. And um, I feel like we're, we've been really fortunate to have worked for some great organizations. Uh, Bruce Hamilton took a chance on me in Kelowna when um, everybody in the Western Hockey League at that time was hiring really experienced coaches and he took a chance on me having never really coached before. Um, and then fortunate enough to be a part of the Flames organization moving forward, both in my time in Glens Falls and Stockton, and then, and then eventually here. So uh, I really think your journey or the path that you go on has a lot to do with the people that you surround yourself with. And I was fortunate to be a part of, or have been a part of two great organizations. <clears throat> I don't think I ever I, I've, I've ever heard the story from you in terms of how you made the decision to finish playing and a few years later made the decision to, to get into coaching. Take us take us through that going back to kind of the the turn of the century in the early two thousands. <laughs> sure, no problem. I I made a deal with my dad when I signed with Chicago um, that if I was still coming up on twenty five years old and I was still in the minors basically full-time, then I would pack it in and go back to university, and I would get my degree. So unfortunately, I was uh, not the greatest player in regards to what was sort of the people that were around me at that time, and I made the decision that, hey, I'm going to keep and I'm going to stay true to my word to my dad, and I'm going to go back to school. So I ended up going back to school, and I got my degree in um, business administration with a major in finance. So I was really gearing myself towards um, an investment advising career where I was going to work with RBC Investments. I worked there while I was going to school under Rhonda Heimers, who's still in Kelowna and does an unreal job. Um, And that was going to be what I was going to move on and do. And then one of the scouts or one of the part-time assistant coaches with the Kelowna Rockets took a scouting job um, uh, with an NHL team. So it opened a spot up. And this happened really late before their training or really really late, just before the Rockets training camp started. So I thought, hey, I'll throw my name in there and see if I can help out at all. I thought it would be a lot of fun for me to be able to do that. Um, And I I interviewed with Mark Habscheid, 
who was the head coach in Kelowna at the time. And, and I got the job at that point. So it was a part-time role for me, but like with most things, it, it might be part-time, but you feel like you spend your whole time at the rink. So I was going to school full-time taking six classes a semester because I wanted to get through the schooling as quick as I could. Um, I worked at RBC Investments, and I also was a part-time assistant coach with the Kelowna Rockets. So that's kind of how I got into it after I finished playing hockey, um, and it really came down to a deal that I made with my dad, and that was to go back to school and get my degree, which I'm, I'm happy to say I did. Well, and I mean, Kelowna worked out pretty well for you. You won, you won a championship, and you spent more than a decade as an assistant and as a head coach in Kelowna. And I, I remember the day that, that you were hired as head coach in Adirondack and, and joined the Calgary Flames organization in the summer of 2014. But I, I, looking back, I, I would imagine that you, you look back and say that was, that was a really good decision. But at the time, I, I wonder how difficult a decision that was for you. Yeah, it was tough. It really, it was tough because, as you said, my kids were young at that time. Um, we were really ingrained in the community there. And, you know, my wife had a lot of friends. She had a, a good little job that she was working with. So it, it was a real challenge for us to say yes at the time. Um, but back to a point earlier in our conversation, um, this is something that we knew, and that was my wife included, that we wanted to try and see how far we could go with it. And the timing was right. We felt really good about the Flames organization, so we, we did make that choice to go. But I think the real challenge is the moving, and it's picking up your kids and, and moving to a, a, a city and then having to pack up again and move somewhere else. That was really the first time we've done it as a family. Um, but one thing I can say about that is my kids are are really great friends. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, when you first move to a new place, of course, they only have each other. So they did a really great job of spending time with each other. And we have three kids that are um, unbelievable to be around. And they make this quarantine time fairly easy in our household because they really do get along really well. He is Ryan Huska, Calgary Flames assistant coach, joining us here on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. So, Coach Huska, you mentioned uh, the family. What have you done in concert over the quarantine? Have you found some series to jump into? Is everyone old enough to uh, find some parallels with the Ozark storyline or not? not? No. You know, my I have uh, 16- and 15-year-old girls. I, I think they'd be fine with it, but I have a 9-year-old boy too. So we're a little bit not quite there for a family sit-down <laughs> for the Ozark thing. But uh, my wife and I have watched The Tiger King. I wish I wouldn't have. That was one of the potentially worst shows I've ever seen. Um, but it's it's so silly that it sucked you in and it forced me to watch all the episodes. So there's some of that stuff going on. There's a lot of Disney Plus going on in our house. So we've watched a lot of family movies. And then it's um, the silly things with, you know, teenage girls that I do have at that age. There's little TikTok competitions. There's a lot of board <laughs> games going on. So we're trying to keep ourselves as busy as we can. And, um, you know, now with the school going on for the kids, the teachers have done a really good job of making sure they have all their information and assignments up online. So their days are structured similar to ways a school day would be. So it's really at night that we just do a lot of family stuff, which um, you know, considering the circumstances is a pretty cool thing to be able to have. So who is uh, the better teacher and who's the better principal, mom or dad in the Husky house? 
Um, no question on both of them. Uh, mom is the better teacher and the better principal. <laughs> okay. They usually, they usually come to dad to get away with things. Um, and it's usually mom that has the stern hand in this household. It's funny. I mean, this is something that no one would ever want. And, you know, the last thing hockey coaches want to do is have a season taken away. All the work you've poured in, you're, everyone's waiting for a great conclusion or, you know, this this real big test at the end. How are you going to do in the playoffs? That's all poof on pause and maybe gone. Who knows? But at the same time, when was the last time you had this kind of quality time with your family when it wasn't in the middle of the summer? I know uh, you certainly have your off seasons, but this this is a, a silver lining of sorts, I imagine. Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, in that regard, for sure. I mean, during the winter time, we spend pretty much half of the month on the road, and I think that's why um, mom is the you know the the heavy hand in the house because she's around with the kids, and a lot of times when when we get home, you want to be um, you know you want to be a little bit more friendly and and the good guy to them. So it, you know sometimes that part is a little bit tougher on mom, but. Um, it, it is really nice to spend that time with them. I mean, it, it's a situation where nobody wants to be in, um, but if you're looking for silver linings for for players or staff with young families, um, this would have to be one of them. Your staff's undergone uh, numerous changes uh, throughout the course of the year with the, uh, obviously Jeff coming in as the interim, Bill leaving early in the year. What's that been like to work on a staff that's evolved and then you have sort of Ray Edwards come in to help on power play. I mean, there's, there's been all kinds of moving parts. Can you ever recall a year where you've had turnover in the coach's office like this year? No, I, you know, I haven't for, for me personally, it's, it's something that I don't think anybody expected at the beginning of the year. Of course. I mean, who would, um, but the one thing I can say about our group is that we have a, a coaching staff that's filled with good people first and foremost, but guys that all work hard and they, they have the same interest in mind and that's to help if any way we can to get this team to the playoffs and then eventually help this team win the Stanley cup is the ultimate goal. So we all have that same objective um, in mind. And I think when Ray was brought in, when all the stuff was going on, um, the one thing that made, I think, it a little bit easier, um, everybody was familiar with Ray um, from his development role. I had a lot of time spent with him because he spent quite a bit of time in Stockton with, with our group down there. And all of the coaches um, were aware of him and, and who he was and what he was all about. So that made it a little bit easier for, I think, everybody when he came in. And it almost made it like it was just you're adding a piece from the inside instead of somebody that's totally different from the outside that you would have to really work to get to know. We really had a, a pretty good book on what Ray was all about and the type of person, the coach that he was going to be. Yeah, no question. Uh, last one uh, on uh, for me at this point, just a, a thought on how the team was going because uh, we talked about it and we probably talked too much about it, having to react to every single game, you know, a, a theoretical yeah. 82 times in a regular season. But we just really didn't know what to expect from this group a lot of the year. Although I will say the last sort of three weeks to a month, there seemed to be some consistency and an identity that was forming. Did you feel that way about the group's play heading into the pause? You know what's funny? When you're in it, um, a lot of times we review the games right after the fact. Um, so we'll sit down and we'll watch the video. Um, you know, you'll make your conclusions and your you know, your notes and, and changes that you want to see, and you'll have your talks with your players. Um, but when you've had this time now, I've gone back and watched a, a lot of our games um, already. 
And as you mentioned, the last number of games, we were playing really well. And I think by almost taking a step back and, and watching it without the emotion, you realize that we were doing a lot of really good things. Um, some of the frustrating things that were part of our group earlier in the year weren't there as often. And I think that's one of the reasons why we had so much success on the road. And I feel like this team was really going in the right direction. Um, and it does make it difficult that we're sitting waiting right now and we're going to have to get ourselves back up to speed quickly. But it felt like we were starting to get ourselves going in the direction that that Jeff and our staff wanted to take this team. And when you, as I mentioned, as you have a little bit of time to go back and watch games without that um, full-on emotion uh, as we have had lately, we did a lot of really good things the last handful of games, last 10 games or so that we played. Um, and I think that was a lot of the, you know, you know, the, the tough times or the inconsistent times early in the year. Um, I think our players did a good job of learning from those and they were starting to put things into 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 play and it was showing in our game as we were headed down the stretch. Ryan Husk is with us, the assistant coach of the Calgary Flames on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. And, and Ryan, for those who don't know, uh, in-game you work a lot with the group of defensemen and you had a couple of new blue liners that, that really only got a cup of tea with the team before everything got shut down and, and put into the situation we're in right now. What were you seeing from a couple of new defenders in Derek Forbert and Eric Gustafson? Yeah, a lot along along the lines of the same things I was talking about with our team. I was really impressed in watching both those guys play. You know, sometimes when you're in it, somebody will lose a puck battle in the corner or, or will say as a coaching staff, man, that was a soft play. He's got to be harder on the puck in that situation. But you go back and watch um, the games later on with those two guys in them. Um, I thought our team looked better with, with them playing. And they added a little different dynamic to our group where Gus was a guy that um, I feel like the more he would have played for us, I think we would have seen a little bit more offensive ability coming out of him. You look at the games closely and you watch him play. There's a lot of plays that he would try or shots he would take that would just miss or somebody wasn't ready for a certain pass. So I think with him, the more he would have played, I think we really would have seen some of the offensive um, numbers really increase for us. And in turn, I really think that he would have done some damage on our first power play unit. I really do. And when you watch um, Big Derek play, there's nothing flashy or fancy about him, but I have, in just watching the seven games that he played, a really great appreciation for his understanding of the defensive game. Like, he, he doesn't get himself caught. He makes sure he stays on the inside all the time. And, and when you, you couple that with his size and the reach and the length of his stick, he's a hard defender to play against. And I think when those two guys were in the lineup, I really liked the look of our back end and the way we were trending. Well, and and it's it's funny because you know you you brought those two guys in and and it puts you in a situation with a ton of depth on your back end and some difficult lineup decisions to make on a game by game basis. But yeah. two of the regular defensemen that you've had for most of the year, you've been extremely uh, familiar with from your time in the American League and in Rasmus Anderson and Oliver Shillington. I, I'm just curious, and, and I know we've talked to you about this before, but I'm I'm curious now that we've had a little bit of a time to pause and reset and you've watched some film what you saw from those two guys specifically and, and what type of strides you've seen from them well Rass first I, I think Rass has arrived like I think everybody would probably agree that he's no longer to me in my opinion I, just a younger defenseman that we're, we're trying to break in anymore like I think Rass 
um, is here. And I think you guys would probably agree with me on that comment where um, we all have confidence that he can be used in each and every situation. Um, there's a competitive edge to his game that he hasn't lost from when we first had him in Stockton. And I think he brings to the rink, brings to the ice surface uh, a swagger. Um, you know, there's something about him where uh, he either rubs you the wrong way if you're an opponent or he's a guy that you know is going to be there <laughs> when the games are on the line. Uh, and that's what you want to see from him. So I feel like he now really believes that he's not just a, uh, maybe a 5-6 guy on the team anymore. I think he has higher expectations for where he should be slotted on our back end, and that's something that we're really excited about. Now, Oliver, I think when you look at his body of work over the last couple of years, and this year in particular, I still think he's made huge improvements in his overall game. When we watch him defend, um, when you watch the gaps that he plays within the neutral zone or leaving the offensive zone, um, how close he stays to the play, He's done a real good job of learning how to be a, a good defender. You know, the one thing that we want to keep working on with, with Oliver is, is play with the puck. Sometimes, um, you know, whether it's overhandling it at the wrong time or you seeing that first option, making that first play, that to me is the next step in his game before he's able to arrive um, like Ross is right now. So I think Oliver is very close. There's a couple little things that he needs to continue to work on and grow with, and I know he's going to do that moving forward. And I still, when I, I look at both these guys, um, but Oliver more specifically, we've talked about his name a lot here because he came to the American League so young, mm-hmm. um, but he is so young still. And I think there's a, a lot of positives in his game right now, and I really do think of him as a guy that's going to continue to get better the more he understands situational play the better he's going to get. And I think, as, I, as we've talked about before, they're, they're two really good young defensemen um, in our group that I think are really going to push for more moving forward. And the final one would just be on a, a guy that, again, you're, you're quite familiar with, and that is Andrew Mangiapane. It's, it's almost a shame. Well, it is a shame that the season had to be put on pause because, boy, was he really starting to pop before mm-hmm. things got shut down. How, how happy are you to see the success that he's been able to have? I'm really happy. Like, he's one of the guys that you really do pull for. I mean, you pull for all your players, but you can say there's a soft spot for some of them for sure, and you want to see certain guys have success because how hard they work and how much time they put into their game to try to play the right way for their team and for themselves. And I remember in Stockton, his first year that he came down with us, there was a lot of talk about where are we going to play him? Um, you know, of course, we talked to the development group. We know what he's all about. We know we can put up points, but we made a decision early on that if he's going to be any good for us here, um, he has to play with the off- offensive guys. So we put him with um, Matt Fratton and Lyndon Bay. And um, very early in that season, he really took off. Um, and we realized we had a pretty good player on our hands. And we, you know, you kept sending up reports that this guy's going to be a good player. I love everything about him. You guys are going to love him when you get him because <laughs> he just works so hard and he's in the guts of the game all the time. And size doesn't matter for him. And that's the beauty of it. You know, you, we always talk about wanting to have the big guys that can skate, they make you harder to play against. But if you're a smaller guy and you're as competitive as Andrew is, um, there is no difference in our opinion in regards to size because he's he does things that a, a six foot four, six foot five guy will do and he knows how to get himself to the net and he has a passion to 
to generate offense. And, and I think that's, it's really going to come out further as we move forward with him. Like he's a, he's a really good player and I think he's a real great teammate and he's one guy for sure that I'm very happy to see have success. And coach on that AHL front, I mean, you, you do have that unique perspective of, of seeing this organization from the AHL level and now on the coaching staff of the NHL side, how has uh, the communication been with Kale McLean taking over for the past two seasons and, what sort of insights can you lend either him or I guess Jeff or Bill before him about uh, I guess players up and down? Well, that I think was a bit of a perk um, last year for sure for Bill, because Bill was new coming into the organization. So, you know, Bill always does his homework on, on everything and everyone. So he he had a pretty good handle on the people in our organization, Um, you know, but there's sometimes when there's a guy that comes up or he really wants to know, can I put this guy in that situation? I think it helped having that, um, you know, me having a relationship and really knowing what these guys were all about. And the same with Jeff. So now Jeff's seen all these guys because he was all, he came in the same time as Bill. Um, But because he was kind of all similar time, Kale was new when they all came in, there's a a good, you know, communication between Jeff. There was good communication between Bill and Kale. There's really good communication between Jeff and Kale and, uh, I feel fortunate that Kale and I can pick up the phone and, and just BS whenever uh, and talk hockey, talk anything really about what we're seeing, what's going on in the game, and then just talk about life in general, I guess. So we have a good relationship, and I think that really helps in regards to um, players knowing what we're expecting out of them. Um, Kale knows exactly how to push them and where we're trying to get those players, and I, I think he's done an excellent job over the last couple of years of making sure guys are, are ready to play when called upon. And um, he's, you know, he's, he's at a position where I think he's going to excel for a number of years. Coach, great catching up. Do appreciate it. Uh, all the best with the uh, TikTok videos. Ah, thank you guys very much. You guys make sure you stay safe and healthy. You too. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, take care. Ryan Huska, the assistant coach, one of the assistant coaches on the Calgary Flames, and uh, always uh, so gracious with his time uh, for us here on Sportsnet 960, the fan, and uh, has turned into a pretty good friend of the station. And it's just it's it's a weird situation for all of them, um, for anybody involved yeah. with hockey right now. Like you're so regimented, right? You're so set in your routine. And yet here you are and you don't have a routine anymore because the season is not being played. It's uh, It's been bizarre for us, and I can't imagine for coaches how bizarre this has been over the last month or so. Well, and they're just wired to work. Like if, to, I host a, exactly. a coaches conference every summer, and it's just nonstop. Like these guys do not have an off button. There's always an area they're trying to exploit. Like we're talking about some of the most obsessive wo- workers in our society. They love it, and it's about making people better. And so to put that on pause, that's that's not easy for them. These are very regimented folks as well. But uh, I, I think the, it's probably the coaches are having a tougher time with this than a lot of the players around the league. Uh, not to suggest that it sounds like Coach Huska's having a problem, but they're just uh, clearly people that love going in, putting in the hours, and really believe in their craft. It's not about collecting a paycheck. It's about make, making people better, turning players into NHL players. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's been neat to watch his progression through the organization. 
We will take a break and come back with another pretty cool guest. It's been a long time coming for our next guest, and he has traveled a very interesting road to his first NHL contract. Uh, We're going to catch up with Calgary Hitman forward. Well, no longer Calgary Hitman forward because his season is done, but uh, former Calgary Hitman forward and new member of the Ottawa Senators. Mark Kastelik joins us next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. A little earlier this week, some uh, pretty cool news. I guess it was actually late last week that we found out some pretty cool news about Calgary Hitman forward Mark Kastelik, who has signed his first NHL contract. He's done so with the team that drafted him last summer, the Ottawa Senators. Welcome back to the program. Pat Steinberg along with you. Let's catch up with Calgary Hitman forward Mark Kastelik as he joined us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Mark, thanks for doing this. How uh, how are you doing? How are you hanging in through this uh, bizarre situation? Uh, thanks for having me uh i'm i'm doing great i'm I'm just hanging out here back home in phoenix with my family my mom and dad and uh, one of my sisters back in town just for the quarantine and just kind of just been laying low for a while just hanging out that's about it it's got to be a it's got to be a weird situation for you. Here you are in your your final year in the Western Hockey League, and uh, all of a sudden the season just comes to an end with with real really no warning. Just I guess take me through the the last month for you, and and how strange and different this has been from your standpoint and your unique perspective. Yeah, it was definitely uh, unexpected kind of ending, and that's surreal in a way as well. It's just. Everything ended so quickly and abruptly uh, without warning, like you said. And just going back to when the whole thing kind of started, uh, my mom and two of my sisters were actually in town visiting for two games. So it was a bummer, first of all, for that weekend got canceled. And then pretty quick after we got news, we were And uh, Mark has dropped out. He's uh, joining us from Arizona. We'll reconnect with Calgary Hitman forward Mark Kastelik. His Hitman career is actually now done because he was an overage forward. And uh, because of the the fact the Western League is not going to finish their postseason, the 2020 Memorial Cup has been canceled as well. His, His junior hockey career has come to an end. The bright side of that is that there will be a next step. He knows he's got the pro contract with the Ottawa Senators because he signed his entry level deal he was a fifth round pick of the senators going back to uh last year's draft and and mark just a, a thought as we as we get you back on i i, I guess just you know knowing uh, that yeah. you, you don't get an opportunity to to finish your time i i mean yeah you you got most of a season but you don't get that opportunity to kind of close out the chapter with the calgary hitman how how has, has that maybe been the most difficult part about all of this for you personally yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I know myself, Dakota, and Kyle, just as Paul, you kind of want that closure and just knowing it's your last game and just knowing it's it all on the line. And, uh, whenever the time came to it, and then just kind of, you want that look around the room and kind of look at the guys you're going to war with and kind of just take a bite everyone and watch with everything in and just with the circumstances around uh, everything, like just not being able to get 
and groups as well. And you just think that that last moment with each guy that you, you wish you could get. And it's definitely a little bit disappointing, but I always just think uh, we're not we're not alone and everybody, I think just around the world is probably mm-hmm. going through this similar thing. So uh, that's uh, a way I help cope with it, but it's definitely not uh, the picture-perfect ending you were hoping for. No doubt, but on the bright side, you uh, late last week were able to officially sign your first NHL contract with the Ottawa Senators. Just a, a thought on on how that felt and and how big an accomplishment that was for you. Uh, just just take me through the emotions of finally putting pen to paper on that. Yeah, it was a huge honor to sign with Ottawa, and I'm, I'm super excited and thankful for the opportunity they have given me and for what lies ahead and. Uh, I thank my family, friends, teammates, so it's just and management and staff enough for everything they've done over the five years with Calgary. I truly, I believe that everything during uh, time in Calgary has led up to this moment and uh, it's kind of prepared me for the next step and just signing, actually putting pen to paper was just a surreal feeling, just knowing that Officially, I'll be going uh, moving forward with my hockey career with Ottawa and knowing where I'll be kind of playing next season with what organization and what to prepare for. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely an exciting feeling for my family and I, and I'm just really excited for the, the future with Ottawa. With Mark Kastelik, who signed his contract with the Ottawa Senators last week, and uh, he is, you know, the outgoing member of the Calgary Hitmen after the Western Hockey League season came to an end. But uh, the, your your journey to an NHL contract, even your journey to the Western Hockey League, is is one of the more interesting ones that we've seen in recent memory. You are a Phoenix born and raised product, and and you started playing hockey in the Phoenix area. Like, how, how do you even get started? in hockey in Phoenix. Tell us about how you got into the sport and, and how you started to progress in uh, in the Valley. Yeah, um, obviously since over the last few years, hockey has grown so much here in Phoenix. Just uh, credit to a lot of guys and people for helping the sport. Kind of awesome here. And uh, for me personally, just my family background with my dad playing in the NHS and my grandpa as well, and I just embedded in the hockey community and the culture, and I don't think there was a doubt in dad's mind that I wasn't going to be a hockey player, so uh, I think it was just uh, at a young age, I kind of fell in love with the game, and uh, I just had all the resources around me to kind of teach me the ins and outs of the game, and then when I came to Calgary, I had so much to learn with the uh during my five years, I've developed so much. Uh, I definitely didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the kind of, I didn't have any bumps in the road or just stuff like that. And mm-hmm. my journey to the contract was definitely not an easy one. Just getting passed on twice in the draft was disappointing and something uh, that I think in the long run, me a better hockey player and a person. I just continue to put my head down and work and that's something uh, I think my parents have instilled in me it was a great work ethic and then something my grandpa taught me as well as mental tough I think just so many things about the 
this has kind of led to this moment, and uh, I think it prepared me well for the next step in my journey. So how did the how did the Calgary Hitmen initially come come and come calling Mark? Like how how did they initially get a hold of you? How uh, get a hold of you? How did you get hooked up playing in the Western Hockey League, playing all your hockey prior in the Arizona area? Um, just uh, I think it was my Bantam year. You know, you're kind of preparing for the Bantam draft at the time. I didn't know too much about the league, but I definitely with my dad's background playing major junior in Ontario. I uh, I think in the back of my mind, it was always that I kind of wanted to play junior hockey and instead of opt for the college route, a lot of American players do. Uh, so the band draft year, I've, throughout the season, I had talked to a couple teams and Calgary was one of them. And I'm just leaving the, the draft. I had more and more contact with Calgary and Mike in particular. And um then that on draft day, I was definitely I skipped school to watch the draft online at home with my dad. And when I saw it was Calgary, I think there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be a great place to pursue my hockey career and uh, also help me uh, kind of mature, improve my game to develop me for the next level in pro hockey weird like making that jump from from arizona to calgary how much of an adjustment was that that was huge uh, just moving away when i'm 16 is definitely a kind of a different experience for some age and i had so much to learn when i left home i was just a young kid super shy and kind of not very mature yet at the time and i think it was just a weird adjustment just into a, a billet family and kind of kind of going about the everyday life as a hockey player and going to school. It was definitely a bit uh, hectic at times, and I was definitely homesick my first year as well. And, but over the years, I just matured and, and developed more as a hockey player. And a that just has kind of that's just something I'm super thankful for is all the moments during my career and all the high schools and of my junior career and all the memories I've made. A couple more with Mark Kastelik, formerly of the Calgary Hitman, now officially a member of the Ottawa Senators organization after signing a contract with the Sens last week. Uh, tell us about getting drafted last year, Mark, and, and you mentioned that you had been passed over in the 17 and the 18 draft, but what, what was your feeling going into the 2019 draft in Vancouver? Did you have a pretty good feeling that your name would be called? I guess take us back to last summer. Yeah, I mean, I had definitely had kind of a season prior to me on the map, more so than I had in the years past. And you never know what's going to happen in the draft. You hear from a couple teams, but at that time, I had never personally talked to a single team that whole year so. I never knew what to expect going in, but I would always hope for the best and kind of just knew whatever happened would be for the best. And at the time, I had opportunity, had I not drafted to go to camp. So I just knew no matter what happened, I was going to be prepared for it. And then once I I was watching the day of the draft at home, uh, with my parents, and once I – officially got the call from my agent that an auto drafted me a couple of seconds later, it popped up on the screen and it was just 
one of the most exciting and moments of my hockey career to date. And it was just super, a super amazing moment to my family as well. And to see, see it on the screen, is much more surreal. And it was just an unbelievable day. And uh, it's one I'll never forget. You mentioned that getting passed over a couple of times made you a better player. Tell us a little bit more about that. What what did that teach you? What were you able to what were the positives you were able to take out of those two disappointing summers? Um, well, it just kinda it gives you that much it just kinda lit a fire under my belly and gives you that much more motivation to work that much harder. I mean, I've always felt uh I had a strong work work ethic, but I think just being passed over kind of takes to another level. And I really just put my head down and blocked out all the noise that next summer and just got to work. And just not getting a camp invite either allowed me to just have a great start with the Calgary that year before I got drafted. Just being able to get those preseason games in and get off to a good confident start uh, kind of propelled me to have a very successful season. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it just taught me to be mentally tough as well. You know, everything isn't always going to be a smooth journey to the top. And there's going to be a lot of uh, roadblocks along the way. And those were those two drafts not getting drafted were some roadblocks. And I think my mental toughness I've learned from my dad and my grandpa have really – one of the great traits that I feel like I possess to kind of help me as a hockey player. So I think just those were definitely two defining moments in my career. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, I wouldn't have had it differently. So I'm super thankful for the, the journey and to where I am now. Final thought for you, Mark, and, and that's just on, I guess, what comes next. And, and if anybody has, has watched you play before or has spent any time around you from a physical standpoint, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any question that you're able to make the jump from uh, junior hockey to professional hockey. But what about some of the other things? What, what, are, what are some of the other areas that you look at and say, okay, this is going to be something that uh, I need to do better or something that I need to work on uh, to, to really be a successful pro and, and make the successful jump? to the next level um yeah i think just i have a great opportunity this summer just with the time off we have from the season to kind of just do everything i can to make the jump so i think some things i'll just be focusing on is just continue to improve your speed athleticism uh work on my mental toughness away from the rink and visualization uh i know the pace at the next level is going to be that much faster. So every time I get on the ice, I'm, my goal is to, to push the pace and kind of work with the best players I can this summer to make the jump. And I just feel like over time, at a higher level, naturally you're going to improve and your pace of play is going to improve. And I'm just really excited for using this summer to kind of work on everything and not leave any stone unturned and, just continue to get better every day so I can make uh, the jump to pro and succeed at the next level. 
Mark, congratulations on signing the contract with the Senators. Congratulations on a great career with the Calgary Hitmen as well. I know it didn't end the way you were hoping and in the fashion that you were hoping, but uh, still a really outstanding career with the Calgary Hitmen as well. Thanks for doing this, and good luck in the next step. Stay safe, and uh, hopefully we are uh, seeing you back on the ice in a very, very uh, quick time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and hope you're staying safe as well. Thank you, Mark. That is Mark Kastelik, formerly of the Calgary Hip, and now a member of the Ottawa Senators organization, joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. Happy Wednesday. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, it is four minutes till three o'clock. Busy show and an abbreviated show. Uh, more Blue Jays baseball, Flames playoff hockey, and in conversation with Ron McLean, all that kicking off at five o'clock tonight. Wildcard Wednesday around the corner, uh, and we'll revisit the 1999 draft. Pat, you thought the '98 draft was bad. Well, got bad news for you. Today's going to be worse than Monday. Bad players in the uh, 99 draft. That first round was atrocious. Like, Oleg Saprikin, who was the Flames' first-round pick, he was actually one of the better first-round picks of that that year's draft, and I think he played less than 350 NHL games. Uh, There were some awful, awful picks in that first round. Just terrible. Yeah. Well, you know, when the first overall pick might want to be the biggest busts as well for a first overall. We'll revisit that at four o'clock. Uh, okay. Pandemic update. Finished season one of Ozark last night, Patty. Oh, my what goodness. What a finale, am, hey? Yeah. Well, it's like an hour 20. We had finished uh, the second to last episode, episode nine. And my wife's like, let's watch the other one. I'm like, but you always fall asleep halfway through. She's like, I won't fall asleep. I promise. I said, okay, it'll be like half past midnight when we're done. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. I'm staying up. Sure enough, uh, there was no way you could fall asleep during that episode. My goodness, the plot twists, the drama, and uh, the cliffhanger that the season ends on. uh, I'm I'm stoked and I'm jealous that you're ahead of me, but I'm most jealous about people that have not started Ozark that are going to because they get to relive that first season without knowing what's going to happen. We can never say we can do that again, Pat. We, We know what happens. It's like what there's there's a couple of shows that that I get jealous of people being able to watch for the first time. There's uh, Ozark would be one of them. Breaking Bad for sure. Better Call Saul for sure. The Wire. Um, watching The Wire for the first time was amazing. That show was so ahead of its time in terms of serialized television. Um, and I'm jealous anytime somebody watches The Wire for the first time. Uh, and yeah, I think Ozark will definitely be one of them. And I'll tell you this much. Season two, without giving away any spoilers, like it just gets more and more stressful. Like it, it is one of those scenarios <laughs> where you you get anxiety watching the show. Anytime a car pulls up, you're like, "What the hell is going to happen?" It just gets worse, but actually better in season two. Season two is outstanding so far. I'm I, I believe now seven episodes into season two. 
Have you been out in the snow yet today? You, you gotten outside yet on this uh, fine Wednesday? No, I decided I, I got no reason to get outside. Like, I mean, yeah. we're supposed to be. I, I went for a run last night, and I'll go for a run again today. But I mean, otherwise, I'm trying to. Uh, for a little while there, I was taking a walk to get a Starbucks at, at you know one of the the grocery stores, specifically the Urban Fair, which is not overly busy at that time of day. But I just. Like mm-hmm. let's I'm I'm it just there's no point in getting out for a walk. We're trying to keep as keep this as as in the house as humanly possible. So yeah, I'll go for a walk or a run tonight. But uh, for the most part, I'm staying in as much as I as I possibly can. Yeah, and it doesn't look like much reprieve today in terms of getting rid of the snow. But it's supposed to be highs of like 10, 11 moving forward for the next few days. There'll be some rain. So get a good look at the snow. Hopefully, it's the last we see for a long while. Okay, uh, wild card Wednesday at three o'clock. And uh, the the incredibly epic 1999 draft will be revisited all ahead of Ron McLean's in conversation at five. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's take a spin and find out all the things we never wanted to know about our afternoon show. It's time for Wild Card Wednesday. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. A reminder coming up at 5 o'clock tonight, another edition of In Conversation with Ron McClain. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 5 o'clock is when we bring you In Conversation. And on today's edition of In Conversation, we will hear from Jake DeBrusque and Louis DeBrusque, son and father respectively, one a former NHLer and now a Sportsnet commentator and the other a member of the Boston Bruins. They'll be Ron's guest on In Conversation at 5 o'clock this afternoon afternoon following that so we're sure they're related of the what i i am positive that they are related okay. yes i uh, good i have got yeah. that confirmed i believe louis himself okay. has uh, confirmed that and by the way oh, good. jake yeah. one of one of the the really really good young people in the game like he's just one of my favorite guys to talk to in the nhl okay. um anytime i've interviewed that guy you just like come away you're like that guy that, that's a well-spoken and a really affable young man so big fan of jake debrusque uh, as a member of the boston bruins as well so those two at five o'clock following that it is game three of the 2015 american league divisional series between the blue jays and the texas rangers pinder the blue jays need a win if they don't win tonight this oh, series dear. is over um so this is a pretty big game it's shifting back to texas Texas, their backs against the wall as they head to the ballpark in Arlington, down 0-2 in their first playoff series since 1993. We'll see what the Blue Jays can do going back to 2015. That's following in conversation, and then following that, Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final, the first Stanley Cup Final game at the Scotiabank Saddledome since 1989. Uh, that'll follow the um, Blue Jays and Rangers, Calgary, Tampa, 04 Stanley Cup final at 8.30 this evening. But right now, it's time for Wild Card Wednesday. Uh, we have got our five categories, pop culture, personal life, career, sports, and wild card. We're in the the uh, casino. We've got the slot machine. Logan has been just killing it with questions. That's why he mm-hmm. is our designated leadoff man. I like the batting order right now. Logan, Pat, Ryan, and let's keep it going. Logo, you ready to rock and roll? All right, let's, let's do it. Personal life. That means I'm Ooh. not going to get it right. <laughs> we can all exhale. Um, gentlemen, I need to know what your most embarrassing story is on a date. The most embarrassing thing you've ever done on a Ooh. date. This is uh, a throwback and a good one because it allows Pat to revisit his horrible uh, 
Night well, at the Pub and for I've me I've told too. that one before though, so I gotta come up with a new. <laughs> Do you have one. another one that's close? I'm sure there is. I just gotta think a little bit here. Yeah. I've, okay, I've, I'll okay, go first. I've, I've I've got a I've got a great one that I'll tell in in uh, in just a second. Um, uh, but so, you go first. I've told it before, and Logan, uh, I was working in Penticton very early in my four years as the uh, play-by-play broadcaster for the BCHL team there. And uh, I had been staying with my aunt and uncle for a couple months while I was in between moving places. They had lived up in West Kelowna, which is like 40 minutes up the highway. And some of their family friends had a daughter who was around my age who was incredibly smart, talented, and beautiful, and completely out of my league. Uh, But I did convince her to go on one date for dinner and idiotically took her to this restaurant way up uh, in the valley side near the top of uh, overlooking I guess Okanagan Lake and uh, the other lake just below it, which is suddenly I'm going blank on. But uh, it was a sort of like a wild game place where you could get all kinds of different meats and things like that. Uh, vegetarian. So really didn't go well. There wasn't anything on the menu that really fit the bill. And uh, I, I really don't think I'm surprising anyone telling you there was not a second date. Okay, I, I've got two of them that come to mind on top of a racist anti-Semite roofer girl. Um, but I've, I've, <laughs> I've told that one before. You never heard that one before? No, um, I, I, this is the, the only thing is, is I, I, I feel like I have decent questions, but sometimes I do get into this situation where no, but that's fine. I've asked one that you guys have had before. It's, it's perfectly fine. I've got enough embarrassing date situations that, that I've got. I could fill an entire day of this. Uh, the one... I, 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 it was the only time that I got a number of a waitress at a pub. We went on a date uh, to local lose. Uh, she turned out to be not only um, an anti-Semite um, and uh, like family born and bred anti-Semitism, uh, which, you know, was a Steinberg that didn't work so well. Um, you know, half my family is out. I was like, okay, well, this is uncomfortable. When she found out my last name, that got really strange. And uh, she was a roofer, so she was like, she was drinking, just crushing Molson Canadians. And anyway, long story short, I went and paid the bill, said goodbye, and left. I was like, this is uh, not happening. Um, it was awkward going back to the same bar, uh, like the bar that she worked at, which was a regular spot. That was awkward going back there and seeing her, but she only lasted a little while longer. Here is the one I'm going to tell. I, Logan, I don't know if you were. I think you were working. Uh, I, I think that you were um, doing this regularly when I told the story about the the time that uh, I got let down, you know, honestly but easily by a girl that I had uh, been on a, a number of dates with, and she basically said, hey, this isn't working, and she was honest about it, and I told you about how appreciated I was well here was the uh, the first date story on that it's a it's a doozy um, so it was actually I believe it was the second date first date went pretty well second date um, I uh, we were supposed to go for sushi so that's that says uh, that's kind of like my move second date sushi if if the girl likes sushi I think that I'm very good at ordering that's, that's right got... I asked I asked first date ideas and you you gave you said sushi's your go-to exactly so it's usually my second date, um, and so I, I was I was using the tried and true formula. 
So went to the gym first, and I remember vividly as I was leaving the gym, all of a sudden uh, I, I got kicked in the stomach and, and figuratively kicked in the stomach. But all of a sudden you felt that like, oh, no, the stomach doesn't feel so good right now. You're like, okay, that doesn't feel – and then it just kept getting worse. And you're like, okay, this is not going to be a pretty situation. Uh, so I'm like, I, I had like 45 minutes. The plan was to go to the gym and then go shower and right to the, to the date afterwards. But I'm like, okay, what, uh, what am I going to do here? So I, I, as Pinder knows, not a big fan of the, uh, the public use of the washroom, specifically for the, the second activity. So I'm like, well, I, I have to. I got this date. So I'll do that, then I'll shower, Jeez. then I'll go. So I go, and all three stalls at the gym are full. I'm like, you got to be effing kidding me. Okay. So I'm like, all right, new plan, new plan. I won't shower at the gym. I will race home, use my home facilities, shower, and then go to the date, uh, which I did. Um, and I, I think I got there about five minutes late after this uh, detour. Um, date was going fine. And then as we're into the sushi, there it is. It's back again. You're like, oh, no. And now you're on the date. And and you're like, okay, what am I going to do here? Uh, so I was like, you're starting to sweat a little bit because you're trying to, to hold it off, right? But you're like clenching. You're no clenching. Way. Well, you're clenching and you're just like trying to like will your stomach to get back to normal. Um, and it, none of it's working. So eventually I'm like, uh, er, I got to go make a phone call. Uh, so then again, uh, into the very small, very small sushi place, uh, went and again used the facilities. And I like she had to have known. There's no way somebody goes to use the washroom after uh, rather goes to use the phone after sweating like that. And then just randomly having to make a phone call. Um, anyway, the date went on okay after that we went on i think seven or eight more dates and and it was actually like she was an amazing person and and uh, i was like bonkers attracted to her so it actually it i don't think that ruined my chances but boy was that embarrassing uh that came to mind immediately as soon as it so yep the old make a phone call so you can go expel because i felt like absolute trash luckily date went well after that oh. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that, that's bad. I think we've all been there in some sort of situation, Pat. Like, not necessarily I, on absolutely. a date, but I think we've all been there at some point in time. What's yours? Um, <laughs> a while back, um, my mom and uh, a friend of hers, they, it was similar, and they had a, 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 her daughter was around my age, so they thought it'd be a good idea to set us up on a date, so I decided we'd go out for dinner somewhere. And, uh, I don't, I don't, I still to this day don't know what happened. I picked her up. We went for dinner. It was okay. It wasn't anything special. Uh, and I went back, we went back out to my truck to, uh, to head home. And for whatever reason, I don't know. My truck was dead. Uh, just like no power whatsoever. So I waited for like half an hour before I could get somebody around that would give me a jump. So I finally... I, I jumped my car. I was like, I'm sorry. I, I have no idea what's going on. Like, it, we just drove here. Uh, and then I got back. It was nothing special to date or anything like that. But uh, at around 1230 or so, I was still up watching TV. And my mom got a phone call from the other lady. And I guess the restaurant we had gone to, I didn't know this, but her ex-boyfriend was the manager of that restaurant and had intentional had sent a waitress that she didn't like very much through the entire date and I guess she just had an absolutely awful time 
and I had to sit around in my truck for half an hour while I tried to get a jump, and uh, my mom heard about it for about half an hour at 12.30 about how a terrible day it was. So, uh, yeah, suffice to say there wasn't Ooh. a second one after that. I've got, uh, I've got one. That one jogged one more for me. Um, just quickly, uh, I was still living at home, so I would have been under the age of 25. I want to say I would have been like 22, 23, uh, so still living at home. And so there is a girl, bless her heart, she's an amazing, amazing gal, and she's now married and, and uh, married to a great guy. But at the time, we were, uh, we were kind of like into one another. And, and so I went out, and, you know, when, when you were planning to go and, and meet a girl and just to have a conversation, for whatever reason, we decided that we'd hang out in my car. And I think the idea was that maybe after a little bit of conversation, perhaps there would be some other stuff that would happen. Oh, baby. Around and, you know, cars cars are where you did that in your earlier, uh, earlier stages when you lived at home, right? So we went and uh, we did that. And at some point during the, the very PG fun we were having, uh, she goes, is it weird that, like, I don't know, like, there was a flashing light on my dash. This is a 91 Honda Civic. So I've never seen that before. I'm like, ah, I'm sure it's nothing. Funny enough, five minutes later, I tried to turn my car on to drive her home, and, yeah, battery was dead because I had left the – so battery was completely dead. and uh, So that was fun, trying to uh, flag down a boost with uh, a girl that I was interested in my passenger seat. Uh, so, yeah, I've, there, there's plenty of embarrassing Steinberg date stories to go around. That There's, there's just a couple of them. All right, Mike, well, that's Patty. You're in the two-hole here. <laughs> Which makes sense for the story that I told earlier. Let's rock and roll. Let's do it. Wow. Come on. <laughs> Career. Uh, okay, gentlemen. Have you ever worked a job where you had to wear a horrible uniform? Have you ever had a job where the uniform made you embarrassed to go to work? Ooh, I would say not for a job. Although I did have a, I do have an interesting anecdote. My first year of doing play-by-play in the British in the BC Hockey League in Penticton, I I had uh, basically just jeans, shoes, and then I had a uh, a blazer that I'd bought in Toronto that someone had done like graffiti on. It was very like uh, big city, not uh, you know probably trendy for fifteen minutes, and uh, that really didn't go over terribly well in the. Uh, you know, all, already conservative hockey world in a retirement community, uh, mostly comprised of like 60, 70, 80-year-old season ticket holders. So I probably, by year two, had jumped into a f- suit full-time, but it, it did take a year of getting scowls before I'd figured it out. Um, I don't oh, have no. anything terrible other than, like, I worked at Old Navy for a while, and you could wear anything as long as it wasn't like branded and you couldn't see like a, another company's logo or something on it. So, uh, but they did have every now and then when there was some sort of stupid sale or promotion there, they'd have the stupid promotional t-shirts that you'd have to wear and it'd be like $1 flip flop or, you know, $5 t-shirts or something like that. And it'd be pink and bright and stupid. And, uh, you'd have to wear those on occasion. That's probably the worst thing ever, but you know, other than that, it was very occasional and nothing overly embarrassing because at least there were 10 other people that looked just as dumb as you did. The 
uniform I had to wear when working for the Calgary Cannons, like we, we, we rave about the work that Sea of Dead is doing, right? Like they have awesome stuff and, and you know, Sea of Dead's got some great throwback Cannons gear that's brand new. Um, that's not what I was wearing at the uh, Calgary Cannons when I worked there. We had nope. these awful track suits that were, I think, made in 1987. I think Every year, they just, like, threw them in the washing machine. They're like, okay, here's your new uniform. Uh, they were navy blue. They were way too baggy. They had, like, the, the blue track pants and then, like, the puffy track jacket. It just looked like you, it looked like you were an aerobics instructor on television from 1986. Uh, you wore that with these awful golf shirts that again i think you went to a make your own golf shirt little little um kiosk at a mall chose the worst quality of golf shirt you could possibly get and then slap a cannons logo on it they were awful and to make it worse they gave you this like i i don't even think it was fabric i actually think it was made out of canvas the hat that you had to wear it didn't even have a snapback it had one of those like lame little metal claspy things with the yes. uh, with the band like everything about it was just awful and then you had to stand out there and you had to clap and and pump your arm for charge and go and do the uh ymca on the dugout and you're wearing these awful uniforms like in retrospect it was awful and uh i'm glad there's not a lot of pictures of that because boy was that uniform just terrible I think that means it's my turn to put a little coin in the uh, in the slot machine, boys. Yep. Wild card. All right, guys. Gum or mints? Why? Gum. Because for whatever reason, like mints are great. Mints are great when they're in your mouth, but. Afterwards, they always leave a really strange aftertaste for me that I worry then permeates to somebody else if, if they happen to get a whiff of my breath. Like, I'm very self-conscious about my breath, so I always try to be somewhat fresh. You know, I try to do um, brush your teeth a couple times a day, mouthwash other times if you're going out, and, and then always have gum around and, and a minty gum so that you can always combat it if, if it's going to happen. Like I, I don't think that uh, it's, it's something that I have a, a big-time issue with, but I'm also, you know, fairly conscious about it and try to be fresh as much as I can. Gum lasts longer than a mint does, and it doesn't leave that same aftertaste that a mint does, especially if you get the the right type of gum. So I, I'm a gum guy. Uh, I, I probably uh, I probably crush two or three pieces of gum a day. That's probably it's not when I'm at home, but most of the time, two or three pieces of gum a day. I would. Yeah, I'm on the uh, the gum train with Pat here. Uh, I, mints just, I don't know, mints don't seem like something that's needed. It feels like there's two of the same category. Everything that you can get in a mint, you can get in gum. It just maybe doesn't last as long, but then you just put another piece of gum in. So, yeah, I don't, I don't get the mint thing myself. Right? Ryan's gone. I'm here. I was muted. Oh. I was just telling a great story about mints. No, I'm, I'm a mint guy. I like the Altoids. I like the tin. 
And uh, gum sucks. Gum's totally overrated. Gum's great for like the first three minutes. And then it becomes more a nuisance than anything, especially the stupid double bubble gum, which is like tricking you. It's Satan's trick. You People actually continue to put that in your mouth. You know how bad it is. You know how short the actual this, this is tasty lasts for. It's, it's garbage. And uh, I'm going with mints, please, and a tin. Thank you. Is Pat still there? Did I offend him with my mince take? I don't think Pat is here anymore. Yeah, Pat's gone. I'm here. Right. Oh, here. No, I'm here. Oh, hi, Pat. Okay. I'm back now. Were you offended by Ryan's mint shake? Is that what that was? No, I didn't even hear what he said. I dropped out as he was giving me the answer. So mints, and I like uh, the tin. Gum is totally overrated. Uh, you spend more time with that tasting like crap in your mouth than it actually is something that you enjoy chewing on. Uh, we've been tricked by the devil to thinking gum is good. Plus it just, yeah, it's gross. No need for gum. Good questions. I like it. There is a Wednesday edition of wild card Wednesday. This has been wild card Wednesday on Sportsnet 960. The fan couple of texts, nine, six, Oh, nine, six, Oh. Um, so somebody, I asked about the, the worst uniform. Somebody goes, I worked at heritage park. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Yeah, it. That's going to be That's outstanding. Yeah. Um, a new low for sports radio. Pat takes a dump. That's <laughs> probably true. Um, this reads you dorks never cease to amaze me. Quit talking about women. Uh, pretty women don't like dorks like you, all three of you. That's, uh, that's a really nice text. Um, I, I gotta be honest with you. I, I think that we're doing okay. I think Rye's doing all right. I'm I'm quite. Uh, I was okay just gonna say Ryan shooting above his weight class, as far as I'm concerned, and well, Pat does Ryan pretty well for himself. O- standing so. ovation every day because of it. Um, so that's kind of mead. Uh, this reads, Pat, you sure seem to get around a lot for the needy loser you portray yourself to be. I think nerdy <laughs> was the was typo. Uh, you don't seem needy to me. You seem uh, you portray yourself as nerdy though. So I think that's just a typo. But either way, I think we lost Pat again. We'll take a break. It's Pinder and Steinberg, Sports at 960 The Fan. Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Say hello to Jeff Snyder, the one and only. He joins us Wednesdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Hello, Snides. What's going on? Oh, just hanging out in my jammies, you know? That's how we do. That, this, is the, uh, this is the new normal for Jeff Snyder, hey? Right. Oh, I'm going to get a prison workout in here pretty quick. I got, you know, Sean, uh, Sean O'Pross is keeping me jacked, so prison workout in the, in the loft of pain. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, you know, I don't know. I might curl up. What uh, with, so, my, uh, with, with my thumb in my mouth and cry a little bit. <laughs> You're painting such an incredible picture for us. What <laughs> what does a uh, what does a Jeff Snyder prison workout look like? Well, I was uh, I was lucky enough. A good friend of mine, uh, Cresswell Hamilton, um, owns uh, Method Fitness. He let me one of his benches, which is great. So um, they're doing like online classes and stuff. And and um, Sean has actually put together. A wicked uh it's quarant quarant training uh so we've uh we're doing all sorts of stuff man lots of leg workouts lots of cardio lots of skipping um you know lots of i got some dumbbells which is great so 
a little bit of free weight and, and it's all just, uh, you know, active body stuff, but the bench, the bench helps a lot. So I really appreciate Crestwell doing that. And then Sean, obviously, uh, um, putting together awesome training packages, working with what we have. So, uh, it's good, man. But let the, let the tunes rip and, and, uh, have my neighbors pound on the wall. Cause the, the, uh, you know, the mega death is a little too loud and, and that's all it is. So are you still, are you still getting out for any runs? Uh, well, the weather, you know, this is positive, right? The weather's been kind of junk. So, um, I've been, uh, I've been hitting the dog park on the regular and, uh, I haven't been out for many runs, but I will get out on my bike here when, uh, when we get going, I'm, I'm becoming quite the skipper, man. I'm telling you, like, it's, uh, it's, it's one thing. If I'm learning a new skill, it's, uh, it's how to do chin-ups and, and, uh, and how to skip. Skipping remains a, a dark art uh, for me. I will never be able to <laughs> skip effectively. That is, that is uh, witchcraft is, is what I call that. Fair enough. <laughs> How are you holding up? Doing all right. It's, it's good to be able to do this show. Uh, I think that both Pinder and I would agree that, you know, being able to do this for four hours a day, five days a week, is, it, it gives you a, a little bit of an escape. Like, usually you use not being at work as your escape from work. Now I'm using work as an escape from, you know, the boredom of doing nothing. So I really do appreciate uh, being able to do this um, for four hours a day. So that's been good. Otherwise, yeah, trying to stay active. I've got some free weights here and going for runs. I just spies running but um you know i went for a run in the rain yesterday and hated every single second of it but uh it doesn't matter if it's raining or snowing or sunny i i hate every single second of running so i'm, I'm doing my best and trying to to stay as uh, as sane as humanly possible during this whole thing um Perfect. Well, here's here's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Looks like the PGA is targeting a June return to action. Uh, Dr. Fauci in the United States today said that, yeah, he could see sports returning this summer if it's being played without fans and if players are quarantining in hotels. So looks like there might be a little bit of a sports light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I'd be super positive. I think just for people to, you know, to wrap their head around something and, and uh, you know, fill some time and it'd be great to watch some golf i'm curious how you know golf's going to play out here um you know in the next little while in the city i think it's you know it's it's just all about doing your part to make sure that uh that we're getting this thing on lockdown and and uh you know doing everything we can to get back to normal i just think for you know just everybody that's sort of just waiting around here it's been quite the experience and and hopefully we all come out of this um you know better better people so it'd, it'd be great to see the the uh you know for for players to quarantine man i i'm not i I wonder how the players feel about that right like i'm sure they want to get back and they want to play it'd be great to do but like you know to be away from your families and corn like how how does that all work it'd be interesting to hear the logistics kind of about you know what goes on there i'm sure all the guys want to get back to work and want to get playing but you know what does that look like from a family perspective too and and a lifestyle lifestyle perspective it'll be really interesting to see what goes on here but um you know the pga coming back would be fantastic i think a lot of people would uh you know, if it'd be the <laughs> it'd be the first time golf was on for you know all day every day. You know, for a lot of folks, but I think it would be welcome to to see those guys all playing. Are you like do you are you a big golfer? Do you get out fairly regularly? Yeah, I play at uh, at Country Hills. Um, it's a great crew up there. Um, the gang, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of guys there. I think Bo Levi's there, and and um, I've been out with uh, with Adam Lowry and and uh, and Joel and and Dave, and you know, we've had a big crew. Um, kind of go up there they they take really good care of us and and uh it's an awesome course to play at so um yeah i play a lot man i tried to uh i think my best round was a 71 and then crashed my mountain bike and haven't broken 80 cents because of my separated shoulder so um i'm working on it I'll be, like it's 
you know, it's, it's, uh, again, a bit of a, a bit of a dark art, you know, it's uh, a guy with my temperament. Uh, it's been quite educating for me to be able to, uh, you know, you can't, you can't fold somebody on the golf course. It's all on your own. So, um, you know, you can't really blame anybody or take it out on anybody but yourself, but it's been, uh, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it a lot. Jeff Snyder's with us from Elevate Lacrosse. Take us back to when you were playing in the NLL and, and you know, you, you played in Philadelphia, which had some really good crowds. You played in Calgary, which had some really good crowds. And you go on the road, Toronto and Buffalo and Colorado are all really good barns, and, and you feed off that energy, whether you're the home side or the road team. But tell us about playing without people. What would that be like? How strange would that be playing in an empty arena and 19,000 empty seats? Well, I think it goes, you know, that really takes you back. To, it, it would be really interesting. I think it would take you back to why you played, right? Like, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, there's no one in the stands, right? Growing up, there's, you know, you got mom and dad and, you know, it's uh, it's pretty quiet in there. So I think it would be really interesting, Um you know, no atmosphere. It'd be just straight. It'd be just straight about the sport, um, and, a, and a really unique, you know, opportunity as a professional, you know, to get out there and, and actually just play the game. Um, you know, for me, I, people ask all the time, like, what do you miss the most about the? You know, do you miss the locker room? Do you miss the travel? Do you miss the guys? What do you miss? And and you know, my answer is always, you know, it, it, it's a little bit selfish in nature, but I, I miss the crowd. I miss going out and and playing in front of a, a group of people. I miss you know, getting a reaction out of the crowd and, and, you know, getting, you know, I, I sort of played that sort of that villain pro wrestler sort of role, if you, if you would, you know, in, in the lacrosse world. And I, I really enjoyed, you know, getting out there in front of a big crowd and doing something well or, or, you know, agitating or causing problems in a, in a, in an away arena. So I, I think it would be, you know, for a guy like, you know, if, if a guy like Sean Avery was, was still playing, he'd probably hate it. Um, but you know, I think there's other guys out there that, you know, you to really dig in, uh, into the sport and just go out and play the game that, you know, that you, you sort of loved. And it, in reality, when you become a pro, it, it's a job, right? you're fighting for your job. You're fighting to stay in the lineup. You're, you're fighting to crack rosters. And, um, you know, it would be a really, it would be a really cool opportunity to just focus on the game for a change and, and limit all the distractions that are out there potentially, you know, winding you up. Um, it would be like, you know, going back and playing pond hockey. What's happening at Elevate Lacrosse? I know that you guys are on pause, just like seemingly most businesses in this city and on this continent. But to tell us what's the latest over at Elevate right now. It's been it's been a unique experience for us. Um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to you know thankful for you know to be in Canada and, and keep our you know keep our staff involved. Um, you know, we're doing a lot on social media. We're trying to engage the community as much as we can. We've got. Um, the leaderboard that we're in week three on right now, um, just challenging kids to go out and get their stick in their hands, keep their skills up. Um, you know, we're doing giveaways and, and posting, you know, what's really fun is there's a level of accountability there. So every week we post, you know, who's doing the most reps and, and who's doing the most work and, and sort of trying to hold everybody sort of collectively accountable in the community. So you can see what your peers are doing and, you know, their kids are out there sort of competing at a distance, which is great. Um, we also launched a program called uh, Connected, um, and what it is is uh, it's essentially building practice plans for kids to do on their own. So, um, you know, we've got uh, uh, a, uh, a student athlete will, will register, reach out. Uh, we'll put together a, uh, a quick practice plan and have a, a call with them to find out what they want to work on. We'll put together the, the drills and, and a session for them, and then they'll videotape 
um, some of their reps and then submit that and then we'll give them some feedback on top of it as well. So trying to just, you know, be as pragmatic as we can and, and uh, you know, shift. We are, you know, we are a business, so we're trying to stay involved and, and stay working and keep our staff, you know, uh, productive. Um, but at the same time, you know, cover costs and make sure that we're not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, we're not sinking, um, even though we are, you know, we're, we're shut down. But it's been really fun to just sort of, you know, put our heads together and try and think about ways to, you know, remain, um, you know, involved in the community. And, and this thing will pass. And, uh, and we want to just make sure that we're ready to rock when it does and, and continue to, you know, work in the community with the kids. So uh, we're grateful that we've, we've had such a great response on that program. It's been fun to sort of, you know, shift and, and, and think a little bit differently. Um, but that's kind of what we're all about uh, at Elevate is, is adversity. And, you know, this is kind of the, this is the, the Super Bowls of adversity on a global scale right now. So we're, uh, you know, I think everybody's really challenged to do things differently. And it's been really interesting to see people step up in the community and do charitable work. And, you know, again, I think a big shout out to the, all the people that are um, on the front lines, whether you're a firefighter, police officer, you're working at AHS, um, you know, thanks so much for, for everybody and and you know we're very grateful for you guys to you know be out there doing what you do and and uh you know we'll try and keep your kids occupied and active and and uh you know hopefully you guys are, are keeping safe and everybody's healthy all the information is at elevatelacrosse.com we'll chat next week snides thanks for doing this hey love it man thanks for doing what you're doing hope you guys are doing well we'll talk to you soon yeah, good stuff, Snyder. Stay safe. Jeff Snyder of Elevate Lacrosse, our Calgary Roughnecks analyst in season, and uh, we also chat with him once a week. ElevateLacrosse.com. He joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery is available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. It's Pinder and Steinberg on a Wednesday in a trip down memory lane coming up next. Sportsnet 960. The fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to the program. And uh, Rye, as we take a little trip down memory lane for the Calgary Flames, let's go back to one of the most iconic goals in Calgary Flames history on this date in 1989. Ooh. Shoots one in. They're after it again. Papinski going in. Score! The Calgary Flames have finally done it. Not a picture goal. It was centered by Papinski. It hit a skate in front. And it's over. It's funny, guys, because when we had Theron Fleury on a couple of weeks ago, we asked him about that goal, and, and he called it the biggest goal in Flames history. And, you know, we had Joel Otto on the day that we played that game, one of the NHL Rewind games, and he kind of downplayed it and said, nah, there were plenty of big games. I was just fortunate to score that one. But, look, knowing how many early-round disappointments the Flames had had leading up to 89, and I know they made the Stanley Cup final in 86, but... You know, there, there was a lot of early exits that they necessarily weren't expecting, and certainly there were a lot of them that came after 1989. And so for Otto to score that goal and to 
have the Flames avoid being upset by a team that I believe finished 40 points behind them in the regular season, that was massive. I, I really do believe that was their holy crap moment. I really do believe that was the thing that they needed to buck off their backs before they could go on their run to eventually win a Stanley Cup. Uh, and let's let's face it, they played three more rounds and they lost three more games. They lost three games against Vancouver. They lost three games combined to the next three teams that they played. Yeah, and the next two series they only lost once. And Hoke and Lube said it yesterday. That was the game where when they won it, there seemed to be an air of, okay, no one's going to stop us now. And they got back to playing the way that they had in that regular season when they and Montreal were the class of the league in terms of one or two in almost every single category across the NHL. Uh, that was a huge one, and I'm with you. you. You've been saying, you know, before we chatted with a bunch of this 89 team, Joel Otto, Colin Patterson, Theo Fleury, Vernon was on the morning show. We had Lanny on. We had the head coach, Terry Crisp. But before all those guests, you had said that's probably the biggest goal in Flames history, and no one has done anything to push the needle away from that. That who knows what this franchise looks like if they don't get those saves from Vernon earlier in the game and in overtime, and then the eventual uh, series winner from Otto. Here is Joel Otto, who joined us earlier during our uh, pandemic run, and he spoke about that overtime goal on April 15th, this day in 1989. It was a, a, a game that we're holding on quite a bit, watching Verdi make quite a bit of saves. Um, uh, towards the end of the first uh, overtime, and I was out on the ice with uh, with Pep. I think Hawk and Lube was still on the ice from his shift, I believe. Uh, got the puck up to Pep, and he did all the work. I just tried to go to the net as best I could to try to be strong and and get in front, and he banked it off my skate. It went in. Uh, I, you know, obviously looking at it, I was in the crease. I can't remember the rules back then. If you could be in the crease, <laughs> it certainly wasn't a kicking motion by any means. I, I just watched it bank off, and then uh, I can't remember if I realized it went in then, or if I heard the roar of the crowd, or uh, saw everybody pretty excited. But uh, it was a pretty big moment, absolutely. Yeah, pretty big moment indeed on this date in 1989. Joel Otto made sure the Flames got out of the first round and avoided a massive upset. Like that would have been a huge upset uh, in 1989. The Canucks vanquished in seven games, and they'd go on to win the Stanley Cup, of course. Now, here's a couple of other uh, events that happened on this date in Flames history. Pinder, you, you're playing, you know, you, you were doing the thing early in the pandemic where we were simulating games and you were playing them on NHL 94 on your Sega Genesis. Now, mm-hmm. re- remind me, was Reichel one of the five guys that you had on the ice? I had subbed in Reichel for Neuendijk, and depending on whether one was hot or cold in terms of there's a little variance of what their rating is, some games Reichel would actually be rated higher than Neuendijk Whereas, you know, if Neuendijk was hot and Reichel was cold, uh, he was a starter and he was sort of the default starter. But I had subbed uh, Reichel in very early in the in the uh, season simulation and he uh, played a, a big role and uh, a couple of big wins down the stretch. Yeah, he, he, they, they weren't that, uh, you know, far apart skill wise, at least on the uh, cartridge that Sega Genesis had in 1994. Did you know that Robert Reichel had back-to-back 40-goal seasons in the early 1990s? And on this date, Isn't in that incredible? 19- I know, like, in, and you know, have we weren't 
as uh, dialed in on the Flames then as we are now. But uh, he had 40 goals, led the team with 40 goals in the 92-93 season. And on this date in 1993, Reichel hit 40 goals for the first time, a 7-3 win for the Flames at the Cow Palace in San Jose, or San Francisco, actually, uh, where the San Jose Sharks were playing as they were waiting for their building to be built. So, yeah, Robert Reichel on this date in 1993 hit 40 goals for the first time. He'd do it again the next year when he uh, actually led the team in scoring. He had 93 points in 84 games during the 93-94 season. More points than Fleury, more points than Roberts, more points than Neuendijk. Now, granted, Neuendijk and Roberts both played fewer games, but back-to-back 40-goal seasons for Robert Reichel in a Calgary Flames uniform. That's impressive stuff, and you'd scoffed. Remember I told you I was going to sub in Reichel, and you're thinking, you've got to be crazy, but Guy had some finishing abilities, and... Uh, I moved Roberts to the middle. I know everyone's very concerned about how the NHL 94 simulation went and uh, a hot run to end the season, I think 9-1. and one. I, uh, I'll never forgive Robert Reichel for uh, being the only goal scorer in the 1998 shootout uh, between Canada and the Czech Republic in the semifinals of the 98 Olympics. Never forget. Five shooters each, one goal. Uh, Robert Reichel on the first shot beat Patrick Waugh, and obviously Dominic Hasek stopped all five for the uh, for the Canadians since the Czech Republic win uh, won that game so yeah I'll never forgive Robert Reichel for that um, two other notes when it comes to this date in Flames history uh, game five back in 2004 round one between the Flames and the Canucks was on this date scoreless after one Craig Conroy scored a power play goal to put the Flames up out in front then a 1-1 tie in the third period Jerome Ginla with his third of the series gives the Flames a 2-1 lead they would go on to win that game 2-1 over the Vancouver Canucks and put themselves in the driver's seat. We know they would lose game six and win game seven in overtime, but on this date in 2004, April 15th, the Flames had a 3-2 series lead on the Canucks in that back-and-forth series. Man, that was a great series, and I don't know, maybe something about these Vancouver-Calgary ones, I mean, I can't seem to recall a series that didn't feel like it was swinging both ways. Like, they seemed to produce a bunch of really really good series i think of 89 i think of 04 clearly 2015 was a ton of fun i mean well, remember what was it 90 93 94 when uh, i'm trying to remember what year it was but pavel Bure down the wing in overtime in game seven at the dome beating vernon that series was outstanding uh when Bure wanted an overtime i know it wasn't exactly the result that flames fans were hoping for but yeah when the canucks and flames meet in the playoffs they give us epic matchups no doubt and what else have you got from uh, this fine day in Flames history? The final uh, the final note from this date in Flames history, we go back to April 15th of 2015. Uh, Calgary's first trip to the playoffs in six years. It snapped a five-year drought, and game one was played at Rogers Arena in Vancouver. Bo Horvat <laughs> opened the scoring for the Canucks. The Flames tied it at one apiece. This game looked destined for overtime. It really did, but didn't end up getting to overtime because of this. He'll play it into the far corner. Backlund moves it down low to Bennett. He centers. Jones right there. Can't get a stick on the centering pass. Puck to the line. Russell shoots and scores! Chris Russell! 
Russell with a howitzer from the left point, and he bounces the puck by Eddie Lack with less than 30 seconds left in the third period. The Flames have taken a 2-1 lead. Third period goals from David Jones, and at 19.30, Chris Russell, and the Flames would take a 2-1 lead. They would win the game by a 2-1 score, and and, uh, just like that... Just like that, the Flames with a uh, 1-0 series lead on the Vancouver Canucks. So that was on this date in 2015. It was a bizarre one, like a seeing-eye shot from Russell. It kind of hit the ice before it went in. I'm not sure exactly how it beat Eddie Lack, but it did. And uh, the Flames took a 1-0 series lead. That was a pretty entertaining series uh, from 2015. Yeah, and why do I feel like I'm getting whiplash hearing Eddie Lack's name as the starting netminder for the Vancouver Canucks? I mean, he just announced his retirement, I think, over the last couple of weeks, but that could not have been the plan for them. Um, He did make 41 starts that year, but Ryan Miller was supposed to be the guy. How in the world did Eddie Lack end up getting that start, Pat? Remind me. Well, if you remember, there was, as you mentioned, 41 starts for Lack that year. And at the time, uh, Lack was the better goalie in Vancouver, especially in the second half of the season. Um, that year, Miller was uh, 45 starts and a 9-11 save percentage. Lack was 35 starts and a 9-21 save percentage. Uh, and Jacob Markstrom started two games that year when I believe Miller was hurt. Uh, so Lack was actually the better of the two goalies down the stretch. He was the guy playing the better hockey. And so they decided to ride the hot hand. Willie Desjardins was the head coach at the time and uh, ah. they went with lack instead and i believe i believe game four is when miller got the call if i remember correctly because lack started game one the canucks won game two um i'm going back to look right now to see whether or not it was miller or lack in net for game two but i thought it was game four that they decided to go to ryan miller after the flames took a 2-1 series lead yeah lack started game two where the canucks won fairly handily uh 4-1 was the final score in game two of that series uh and then they came back to calgary and in game three lack started so yeah it must have been game four when eddie lack rode the bench and ryan miller yes lack got pulled in game four miller came in and he started the rest of the series remember the canucks fell down three games to one before forcing a game five um forcing mm-hmm. a game six of the win at home and then that crazy game six that we've talked about so many times that was a really fun series you look yep. back at the players on both sides you're like yeah the sedines were playing in vancouver so you know you still have that but you look back at both sides and you're like geez neither of those teams were star studded there was no giordano for the flames it was only uh, Monaghan's second year, Gaudreau's first year. But, like, here's the roster for the Flames, if you remember. Like, Corey Potter played in game one. David Schlemko, uh, Dennis Weidman, Derek Engelin, Joe Colburn, Brandon Bolick, Josh Juris, David Jones, Marcus Granlin played seven minutes that night. Like, that was not a star-studded Flames roster. And then on Vancouver, you were talking about uh, you had the Sedins, um, and you had Burroughs, but it was Yannick Weber, Radim Verbata, Lucas Spiza, Brad Richardson, Sean Mathias, 
um, Dan Hamhuis, Derek Dorsett. Like it was just that, that was a really weird year for both teams. Like, I, like how did the Canucks get there, and how did the Flames get there? That 2014-15 year in the Pacific was bizarre. Anaheim was so much better than everybody in the Pacific that year, and uh, they would of course beat the Flames the following series in five games. Yeah, it did feel like the softest 2-3 matchup out there, if I recall. And if you look at the point totals, it does make sense. In the Central, you had 200-point teams meeting in the 2-3 bracket. Nashville and Chicago in the Metropolitan. Uh, you had strong teams in Washington and the Islanders, both over 100 points. Tampa, Detroit, both over 100 points in the Atlantic. And then, it, yeah, it just didn't really feel right. But, hey, Vancouver, Calgary, I guess by default. Meanwhile, uh, the 100-point Minnesota Wild had to play in the wild card because uh, they certainly couldn't have qualified in that three hole in the Pacific. But uh, yeah, that might've been the high water mark for Eddie Lack, Pat. He had 18 wins that year and made 41 starts. Those are both career highs. Uh, it felt like there was going to be a lot of good hockey ahead of Eddie Lack at that point. He landed in Carolina the following season and yeah, it didn't go well at all. And, he wasn't in Calgary long after that, and he didn't last in Calgary long, only making four games in Flame Silks before being sent to New Jersey. Uh, it was a pretty quick fall from what uh, seemed to be the peak, that 14-15 season for Lack. Yeah, and uh, yeah, time with the Calgary Flames, not so well. He was part of the uh, he was part of the trade that, that they brought in uh, Ryan Murphy, right, and then bought him out immediately. Uh, he came yes. over from Carolina to back up Mike so. Smith for that year because Mike Smith's first year in Calgary, the tandem to start was Smith and Lack, and it turned mm -hmm. into Smith and Riddick uh, sometime, I want to say, in late November. Um, but, yeah, it was Smith and Lack to start the year before Riddick got recalled and, and took over the job as the backup goalie of the Calgary Flames. I'll tell you this much, April 16th, this date in Flames history, not yep. a lot of good. Uh, in fact, the Calgary okay. Flames have never won a game on April 16th. So we'll see what we can pull out of our hats for this date in Flames history uh, tomorrow, but we will do it once again. Coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, if you missed our conversation with Ryan Huska, assistant coach of the Calgary Flames, we'll hear that again. Uh, but up next, redraft part two. We did 1998 on Monday. Today, we're looking back at the 1999 NHL draft. If you thought 98 was bad, who mama? Take a look at how bad 99 was. That's next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960, The Fan is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Well, we did our first NHL redraft on Monday when we looked back at the 1998 NHL draft and that was a year that Vinny LeCavalier went number one, but I think we all had him still in our top five. I think we all unanimously went with Pavel Datsuk, who was a sixth-round pick that year. I think we all unanimously went with him as the number one pick, and we all had Vinny LeCavalier in the first five picks, though. I don't think you can say the same for the 1999 NHL draft and the number one overall selection that year. Welcome back to the program. It's Pinder and Steinberg along with you on this Wednesday afternoon. We're doing this as the pandemic continues. Looking back at the 
different drafts and how things would have been different, should have been different, and what teams would have liked to do different. This was in Boston, the 1999 NHL draft. And, guys, I remember listening to this on 66 CFR. Peter Marr and Alan Adams did the draft from Boston, Massachusetts. I remember it vividly uh, listening on, at the time, this was all a Saturday draft. So first, all, all nine rounds happened on Saturday at the NHL draft, and that was the case in 1999. That year, Patrick Steffen went number one overall, and uh, Pinder, while Vinny LeCavalier may not have been the unanimous number one pick looking back at 1998, uh, he was still a first-round pick. Patrick Steffen, one of the bigger number one overall busts that we've seen in a long, long time. Yeah, and it's it's sort of hard to say that and pin anything to Patrick Steffen because he just had this incredible rash of concussions that he never could get over and stay healthy enough to really continue his development and become a good player. It was a painful one to watch because it wasn't just a guy that wasn't good enough. It was a guy that couldn't stay healthy to develop as a hockey player. But yeah, I think when Brian Burke, um, you know, early on in his tenure, it wasn't considered a, a career defining move. But when you look back, it has to be one of the greatest coups of his management career was acquiring both the Sedins in the two, three hole of this draft, because both of them had careers that each dwarfed, Stefans, who went number one. That is what the 1999 NHL draft will be known for, the Henrik and Daniel Sedin draft. Uh, Daniel went number two, Henrik went number three, and you're right. As general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, Brian Burke was able to put together a, a pretty incredible plan to get both picks and be able to take them as brothers. And that was that was the whole thing. If you remember, guys, going back to that time, these these guys had played together their entire career. They were coming out of Moto in the Swedish League. And the whole question was, well, how are they going to do if they're split up? Because who's going to be able to draft them as twins? And we didn't know what Henrik and Daniel Sedin were, were going to look like had they played on different teams. Well, it didn't end up happening that way. But, guys, that would have been fascinating. If, if Brian Burke does not pull that coup and does not find a way to be able to take those two players back to back and have them both as member of the Canucks for their careers, like, uh, what, what do the careers of Henrik and Daniel Sedin end up looking like? I don't think that we can really give a kind of concrete answer as to what that might nope. look like. Of course we can't, because when you were asked about Sedin, the first thing you're going to do is mention the brother. I mean, they, they were a package item their whole career in the sense that I don't know what one looks like without the other because we had incredibly limited viewing. It would be like asking you, hey, guys, what's Sean Monaghan look like without Johnny Gaudreau on his wing? I mean, mm-hmm. how many legitimate appearances do you have there? Now, imagine that, but well, times more the with, time. More with Monaghan than you do with the Sedins, right? Like, Monaghan yeah. at least had one season without Gaudreau. So it's it, you can't begin to talk about Asadine you're only talking about the Sedins. So for Burke to be the GM that figured out the multiple deals to get all that in place to select them and then to watch number one stumble while the other two um, actually eclipse a thousand points each, that's that's a significant achievement and the coup of the draft, which we've already alluded to. The 99 draft wasn't a good one, Pat, but the one thing it had that the 98 draft didn't have, 2,000 point players. The 98 draft didn't have a single one. 
Well, here's the here's the fascinating question, gentlemen, and and we got Pat Steinberg, Ryan Pinder, Logan Gordon along with you. If you were to redraft the 1999 NHL draft, knowing all of what we know now, and you are the Atlanta Thrashers with number one overall, Logo, who are you picking number one overall? Is it one of the Sedins, or is it uh, another one of those late run, late round home runs that the Red Wings were able to pull off? Well, knowing what we know, I think in the just the fact of the matter is, is you guys are right. We never knew what the Sedins would be separate from each other. We didn't even have a season where, say, one of them got hurt and we got to see somebody for you know sixty games without one of the other. That never happened. They all had, you know, they both, excuse me, had long, healthy careers. So I think if you're Atlanta and you, you know, going back at it now with without the knowledge of knowing what one of those guys could be like without the other. Your best bet is to take Henrik Zetterberg, who, you know, winds up playing over a thousand games and, you know, finishes, you know, if he had played 1,300 games similar to the Sedins, probably winds up with a point total somewhere around or above what they had and plays center, which is a, a valued position in hockey, right? Yeah. I'm thinking, Ryan, what about uh, you? yeah, I, I, I don't know that uh, if you're Atlanta, you if you think one of the Sedins is the best player, you take him for sure. Now, what do you have to do to get the other? Uh, who knows? But uh, I don't think Zetterberg's a bad pick at all. They, that's, uh, I mean, those are the three guys. After that, it, it's a case of incomplete careers and really not that great players. So the, the, real, the only question is, are you selecting one of the twins and trying to figure out the rest later? Or do you go with Zetterberg, who in hindsight is probably the only other guy that could be considered up for a Hall of Fame caliber career, right? I think, like, for me, and it's funny because we're talking about three guys all from Sweden and, and they all won a gold medal together. And I, I just look back at the the career of Henrik Zetterberg. I think one of the most underappreciated elite hockey players of the last era. I I honestly believe from a two-way standpoint, from a hockey IQ standpoint, uh, from a physical standpoint, all of the things that Zetterberg does with the Detroit Red Wings, I, I take a look at him as one of the, the truly elite centers of, like, I, I, like we talk about Patrice Bergeron, right? And, and we, I, I think that there's a little bit of romanticizing when it comes to Bergeron because he, he's Canadian and, you know, he played that Stanley Cup final with every injury in the book and, you know, he uh, was, was such an early member of, of the Boston Bruins like early in his career and he was young playing for the Bruins and was part of that 05 World Junior team but I think like knowing that they were somewhat contemporary players like to me Zetterberg is in the exact same category as Bergeron in terms of what they do to win in terms of what they do at both ends of the ice in terms of their hockey IQ their willingness to put everything on the line I and I really believe that you know if Zetterberg was born in Sarnia or Red Deer uh, it might be an even more and 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 plays in maybe a different market that wasn't Detroit and and I say that because the Red Wings were just so good for so long and they had so many other Hall of Famers and Datsuk was on that team I I just look at Zetterberg as one of the most underappreciated players of his era and uh, of the last of the last era and and yeah I absolutely would have gone Zetterberg number one overall that's no knock on either Henrik or Daniel Sedin but uh, I, I think of of those three guys who are clearly the three best players from 1999 the most complete guy was Zetterberg for me and the other thing too that we have to remember is the hoops and the hurdles that Brian Burke went through 
to actually set it up so that he could take the Sedins. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you could ever pull that off again so that it worked out that way because Atlanta wound up with the first pick from Tampa Bay, which was Vancouver's, and then he traded Brian McCabe that same year so that he get the four. You know, like there was so much that goes into having to, you know, make it so that he could get them two, three. I don't know that you could ever find that again because, I mean, especially after the whole Vegas expansion draft things, I don't think teams are out there, you know, and willing to help out another franchise that much anymore. Mm -hmm. I agree. And we talked to it right off the top. That's, that's the master stroke of his career. There's no better um, GMing done than at this draft for him uh, without a doubt. And you end up with two hall of famers, albeit, you know, early in the careers, there's a lot of questions about would they have enough to, to do what it takes to win. But I mean, we talk about multiple presidents, trophies, back-to-back -back years, a trip to the Stanley cup final. It wasn't a lack of Sedin that held back the Vancouver or yeah. the, it wasn't the Sedins being good enough that held back the Vancouver Canucks. They, they were the engine that drove the Canucks for very long. And as you said, Logan, healthy, uh, durable careers, which I don't think they get enough credit for. That's the one area you have to give them the check mark over Zetterberg without question. Uh, and three, three Swedes, clearly the class of 1999. The, the question beyond this, boys, I mean, who's the best goalie out of this class? Like, can you actually say any defenseman well, taken wherever a number one or a number two? Like, it's, it's, it's pretty ugly after uh, the three Swedes. It's, it's fascinating because, like, there's no doubt who the three best players were of that draft. All three of Henrik Zetterberg, Henrik Sedin, Daniel Sedin, I think, are Hall of Fame players. From that point, yep. though, like, who who who's even close to that category? There's nobody from that draft. There's three elite players that came from that draft class, and then you're talking about some guys who had nice, long NHL careers, but none of them were ever high-end. I mean, I, I think Martin Havlat, when he was healthy, um, and he ended up going 26th overall to the Ottawa Senators in that draft, I think Havlat, when healthy, was the closest to a high-end player. But, you know, you talk about Zetterberg and some of the injury issues he had later in his career. Havlat was a Band-Aid his entire career. Like, what, what was it, Logan, you were doing yep. the research? Five seasons that he played over 70 games? Like, yeah, Havlat never, had such Never a, a difficult full season. Time. No, yeah, not so like it's such a difficult season. time staying healthy that you know we never really got to see the the full scope of what he could have done. But yeah, he was a really good player when when he was right. But you know you're taking into account the entire conversation. Radim Verbata played more than a thousand NHL games, and and he probably has to be in the conversation as the the fourth best player in that draft. But it just it's a big time drop off once you take a look at. Sedin, Sedin, and Zetterberg. It, it goes from Zetterberg, who had 960 uh, career points, to Radim Verbata, who had 623, which is nothing to shake a stick at, but we're not talking about that being a, a real high-end player. He's just a really serviceable, consistent guy over almost 1,100 NHL games. I've got a top four on the blue line, because you're right, it gets real thin up front for, in terms of star players. Mm -hmm. You go to very good, more one-dimensional players like Verbata, finisher, like, you know, Marty Erat, who you wouldn't expect a lot of offense from. You know, Pyatt and Kelly are guys that were really solid third, fourth liners in their career. But my goodness, like, where's the star power up front? The blue line might be worse. Jordan Leopold, Franasek Caberlet, Barrett Jackman, Nick Boynton. That's about the best. And were any of those guys ever a one or a two in this league? Um, mm, Jackman might have played a bit Leopold of time was, for St. Louis. But it would have been a... only 
only as options that because you weren't good enough. Like you don't ever build a championship team without those guys on your second or third pairing. Like that's just maybe well, I'm crazy, but fairness, all those Le- guys I see better Leopold suited. Is- was the Leopold was the number two on on Calgary's run to the 04 Cup final, and he was the number two all year long. So. I don't like Goche and Ludman were, were weren't there, but Regeer Leopold was the pairing, and they were right. a, a pretty high end shutdown pairing. So Leopold had a really good career. Uh, again, injury issues were the big thing with him, but he would be the one guy that would be close to it. And on a run to almost a championship, a goal away in two thousand four, Leopold was a two. So that that would be the only rebuttal I have. But sure. your point remains that, that was not a great year for defensemen. Barrett Jackman was a serviceable top four, one of the really good shutdown guys, but top four at best. Yeah, there's there's no there's no number one defenseman or or surefire even top pair defenseman for a long period of time coming from this draft. Yeah, and just not that elite can do everything type guy when you look around the league and you see Headmans and you know Eric Carlson like in his career, like there just isn't one of those guys in this draft. There just isn't. They're all you know, more serviceable role-playing guys, but that's kind of the the idea of the draft. And then in net, Patty, two goalies, one of them drafted by the Flames, believe it or not, that uh, were the mm-hmm. only ones that could really establish themselves as, as career NHLers. Yeah, Ryan Miller, uh, not drafted by the Flames. Craig Anderson, drafted by the Flames. Craig Anderson was a third-round pick, uh, and Ryan Miller was a fifth-round pick. Those are the two kind of full-time NHL goaltenders that we saw coming out of this draft, but it was not a strong year in net. In fact, one of the biggest busts in first-round history came from this draft. Brian Finley went sixth overall to the <laughs> Nashville Predators. I remember this one because I, I was I was huge into the drafts at this time, and um, and I remember Brian Finley going sixth. And you're like, even at the time, you go take a look at his numbers from Barry in the OHL. You're like. These aren't really all that good. Like, how is this guy going sixth overall? He played four NHL games as a sixth overall pick. Like, wrap your head around that. Like, a complete and utter waste of a shot to go and get a guy that could uh, that could define your franchise. Now, as it turned out, there weren't a lot of those guys. And at number six, the Predators weren't getting somebody there. But still, to get four NHL games out of a sixth overall pick is criminal. Oh, and we should mention then later on. Oh, sir, go ahead, Ryan. You uh, Maxi Mollet at 22, only 12 NHL appearances. Cool. And Ari Ahonen did not play a single game in the NHL. So that's three first-round netminders, and they combined for what? 16 games in the NHL? The, you made it the sound yourself. That's a barf cool. in your mouth. <laughs> this is why people yell, don't take a goalie in the first round. Yes, there are stars there, but you can swing and miss so easily. Yeah. Three guys in the first round. 12, 16 total games in the NHL. That's appalling. Yeah, that is awful. Go ahead, Logo. Uh, I was going to say, we should note, too, that in the top 10 of this draft, two players from the Calgary Hitmen that uh, didn't go on to have uh, much of NHL careers either. Pavel Brendel went fourth eventually to the New York Rangers, and then Chris Beach to the Caps at number seven. Pretty remarkable to have two guys – from the same junior program here in Calgary going in the top 10. But Chris Beach, only 198 games. Pavel Brendel, not even a full season's worth at 78. Yeah, yeah no, that's those, a good uh, point. 
those were those were high end hitmen too. Like those were really good players. Like I have them. Like you go and you take a look at the bus from the 1999 NHL draft. I've got Brendel, 78 games. Chris Beach, 198 after going seventh overall. We just talked about Brian Finley. We've already talked about Patrick Steffen. How about the Edmonton Oilers taking Yanni Rita at 13th overall? He played 66 games. The uh, Florida Panthers took Dennis Schvidke, 12th overall. He played Who? 76 NHL games. Schvidke? Like, they're just Schvidke. Um, they were just – there were – some really, really bad picks in uh, the 19th. Like, that first round will be one of the worst first rounds that uh, we've ever seen. Uh, like, just awful how you were able to, <laughs> to miss as many times as teams did. Here's here's the craziest thing about this draft. And, Pinder, you talked about it on Monday when we were talking about 98, and you talked about how the sixth round might be one of the better sixth rounds that we've ever seen. Well, how about the yep. seventh round from 1999? We mentioned Zetterberg. He was a seventh-rounder, 210th overall. Radim Verbata went to Colorado two picks later at 212. And Tom Kostopoulos, Martin Erath were also picked in the seventh round. All four of those guys, Zetterberg, Verbata, Erath, and former flame Kostopoulos, all played 630 or more NHL games and were all taken yeah. in the seventh round. Incredible. Uh, some other interesting names. Uh, George Peros, who now runs the Department of Player Safety, he was taken very late, uh, round eight by the Kings, 222nd overall. He finished just shy of 500 games, but did eclipse 1,000 penalty minutes, which might, which might be the best way to measure uh, what he contributed to teams. And uh, some other names of note. Uh, well, like there aren't a ton, but I, I guess, you know, the, the Flames <laughs> did get Saprikin in round one. They didn't ever sign Craig Anderson after drafting him, and their other seven picks they made, nothing. Ugh. Yeah. They, uh, the other seven picks they made combined one NHL game from 1999. Ugh. Matt Underhill was a goalie taken in the 99 draft in the sixth round, and he ended up playing one NHL game. He played that one NHL game with the Chicago Blackhawks in the 03-04 season. Otherwise, nothing. Dan Kavanaugh, second-round pick from Boston University. Nope. Uh, Roman Rosakov so out of Russia in the fourth round. Matt Doman uh, out of Wisconsin in the fifth round. Jesse Cook out of the University of Denver in the fifth round. Uh, Corey Pecker, right winger out of the Sioux Greyhounds in the sixth round. Uh, Blair Stazer uh, out of the Windsor Spitfires in the seventh round. And Dmitry Kirilenko out of Seska Moscow uh, in the ninth round. Can't believe he didn't That was not a good draft for the Calgary Flames because... (laughs) Saprikin scored one of the biggest goals in team history. He really did. Game five of the 04 Cup Final. Otherwise, Saprikin's NHL career was was pretty ho-hum. The best player the Flames selected in 99 ended up starring for other teams like Colorado and Ottawa and never played a game for the Flames, and that's Craig Anderson. That's a draft to forget in a drafting era to forget for the Calgary Flames. I've got some... Now... Anderson did play this year with Ottawa. The season hasn't been ended yet. It's been paused. He's still active. Is anyone else still active when you look around this draft class and, and saw any names? Because, I mean, it was bad to begin with. But Ryan uh, Miller still. Him. Yeah, okay. Yep, so, and he's been backing up an Anaheim. So the two goalies, that's, yeah. they're not many guys at all. And I think the last one I got was Derek McKenzie. 
who played in Florida last year or for a game or two. That was it. Well, we're, uh, you had a couple of other interesting notes there, Logo. Yeah, just some deep divey stuff on the overall for the draft. Uh, 41.2% of the players drafted in the entire draft made it to the NHL. Your average career out of this draft lasts 250 games, uh, and your average goals uh, for your career, 33. Uh, big helps to uh, the Sedins and Zetterberg for helping <laughs> up some of those stats. Average goals. <laughs> Uh, here is the most important thing that we missed. Here's the, uh, I've got one more that we missed that I think is is crucial. Maybe it's the same one uh, that you've got, but at number 42 overall, uh, the New Jersey Devils select morning show regular Mike Commodore out of the University of North Dakota. At number 42 overall, Mike Commodore, part of the 1999 NHL draft. Yeah, there you are. Uh, If you're looking at the draft, it's a little confusing. There's uh, 37 picks made in round two, Pat. The league didn't even have 30 teams. There were 10 compensatory picks in the second round. Some uh, may not know, others have forgotten, and some might even remember that there once upon a time was compensatory second round picks, 10 of the 20 handed out over the course of the nine round draft. Uh, So yeah, had to do a little digging to figure out why in less than a 30-team league, there was 37 picks in the second round. So what were the compensatory picks for? Did you get that far? They would be for, I believe, the signing of free agents. So when you go to the second round, uh, the Capitals got an extra second-round pick, as did Florida, Edmonton, New Jersey, Los Angeles, Nashville, Nashville again, Pittsburgh, Nashville, Dallas. Um, Yeah. And also of note, we talked about it on Monday, there was an expansion draft. Uh, that occurred earlier. It was Ed Ward taken from the Flames by the Atlanta Thrashers who got to be involved in their first NHL entry draft. Should also know we missed, Good a, stuff, gentlemen. We missed a chance to get Big Earn on. He was uh, a draft. He was in that year. class too. Yep. Yeah. Where does he, where do his pims come in? Cause that's uh, got to be top of the class. I'd think. Uh, no, He's Barrett Perros, Jackman and George oh, Perros. Jackman's got him. Yeah. Come on. Peros over. He's only played 317 games, though, guys. Like, yeah. Actually, Henrik Sedin finished his career with more penalty minutes than Brian McGrath. So does but Commodore. Also th- but but there's like, trivia for you on the Sedin front. <laughs> Sedin played 1330, McGratton played 317, and they were 71 penalty minutes apart. The average a little different. Wow. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't done the deep dive on, on average penalty minutes, but just taking a quick perusal, I think McGratton's got it. McGratton or yeah, uh, Matt Karkner. Matt Karkner uh, for sure. Karkner scored a huge overtime goal against the Pittsburgh Penguins, I remember. So, huge Pinder, overtime goal. Karkner played 237 games. How many penalty minutes do you think he has? 556. I've you... got it in front of me. I apologize. I've ruined you? it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there it is. I hope it's better on Friday, boys. 2000's got to be better. I no, feel I'm like just, I'm just we're doing either the way quick. off on our expectations or these are two bad draft years. They were really bad draft years. I'm just doing the quick dive, by the way, quick math on this one in terms of uh, penalty minutes per game. 
Uh, Matt Karkner with the win. Uh, Brian McGratton averaged 1.92 penalty minutes per game. Matt Karkner, 2.34 pims per game. So he would be your uh, he'd be your winner from that draft oh. in terms of trips to the penalty box. Matt Karkner over Brian McGratton, although I'd take McGratton in the straight-up head-to-head against Karkner if they were to pay to swear watch. off in a fight. No questions asked. I would definitely pay to watch. Um, to a Friday, we'll do our next one, and it is 2000, where we head to the Saddledome boys with a couple Calgary boys going in the first round and a major trade near the top of the draft. It ain't a boring one. 2000 is going to be fun. It's Pinder and Steinberg. A little bit later on this hour, Ryan Huska, Calgary Flames assistant coach, will join us. You're locked on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, welcome back. 433, Pinder and Steinberg rolls on. Reminder, abbreviated show today, meaning uh, we're already into the sports drive at 5 central time. Uh, We'll be off to Texas, speaking of central time, at 6 o'clock, Jays-Rangers Game 3. The Blue Jays, after a 22-year playoff drought, have gone 0-2 to start their ALDS against the Rangers. Oh, but no! But it's a scene switched to Arlington. Don't worry, Pat. You told us yesterday it wasn't win or else yesterday. It was not a do-or-die game. Uh, today is, without question. We'll see how they respond at the ballpark in Arlington. That starts at 6. Ron McClain in conversation at 5 o'clock with the DeBrusques, Jake, and Papa, and uh, we will also hear the Blue Jays pregame with Mike Wilner to get a set for the Rangers and Jays. That'll be followed by Flames and Lightning. Game three of the 04 Stanley Cup final. Patty, I'm trying to find uh, COVID numbers here in Alberta. I Do you have for anything you. for us? Yeah, okay. 126 new cases today. Uh, again, um, the uh, the big thing with the reporting of cases right now is that testing is way up in Alberta. Uh, we are one of the uh, North American leaders in testing per day. Uh, so our totals are a little higher right now, down from yesterday, but not a whole lot of information. There was apparently an outage at the lab, so some of the data reporting uh, isn't as accurate today as usual. So back to full reports tomorrow. But 126 new cases, uh, not sure what the testing numbers are no new deaths today from COVID-19 so 126 new cases and the the big message from everyone who is far more informed than I am is that uh, yes numbers are higher the last little bit but testing is also higher so uh, it's not necessarily cause for alarm yes uh, I'm excited about uh, the two sporting events on our radio tonight also Ron McLean uh, will be a ton of fun as well and coming up next Patty we get to uh put ourselves in the shoes and hear from uh, a chronic worker, a coach in the NHL. Uh, life is certainly a whole lot different uh, these days than it was, you know, 35 days ago when we still had an NHL season. We uh, check in with Ryan Huska. Good chat from earlier today. That's next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. This is the latest from the 660 News Traffic Center. Traffic for 660 News. Calgary's number one for breaking news, traffic, and weather. You can stay up to date with the very latest on the coronavirus by tuning to 660 News three, four, five times a day. Or visit the website 660citynews.com. We continue to see tie-ups on McLeod Trail at 9th Avenue downtown in the southeast. Both roads have got some lane closures that will go all day, every day, right through the rest of the month. And there is another downtown detour in place. 
place. The construction at 4th Avenue and 4th Street Southwest has both roads shut down till at least tomorrow morning. And in the 660 News Traffic Center, I'm Trace Ventura. Need mortgage advice? Connect with a CIBC mortgage advisor and get it done remotely together. Learn how at CIBC.com forward slash mortgages. It's time now for the Fantasy Minute. Delivered by Domino's Pizza. Here's Andy McNamara. The NFL Draft is just over a week away, and I have my Mock Draft 1.0 up on sportsnet.ca right now. You can get the link on Twitter as well, at AndyMC81. First two picks should be no-brainers. Joe Burrow to the Cincinnati Bengals. Come on, they need a quarterback. He's Ohio-born. He's won the Heisman Trophy and the National Championship. Makes way too much sense. Now, team could try to overwhelm them, like the Miami Dolphins, who has three first-round picks in two seconds this year and another pair of first rounders next season so they could try but if i'm the Bengals, stay pat take the quarterback and go to the washington redskins chase young is a guy who to me is the best player in this draft overall he's a pass rushing game record and can set your edge for the next decade take him again don't overthink it take the best player what you should also not overthink is getting domino's pizza hey carry out delivery deals contactless delivery check it all out at dominoes.ca If you're hungry, check out this great deal from Domino's. Unlimited two-topping medium pizzas for just $7.99 each. That's right, as many pizzas as you want with a minimum purchase of two pizzas. So stock up, dig in, and feed that hunger with unlimited two-topping medium pizzas. Perfect for the big game, a busy night with the family, or just because. Order online today at dominoes.ca and add on some great side dishes and dessert. That's dominoes.ca. Reports are saying this may go on for the months. I heard I heard, oh no, I heard playing I heard news. news. It was reported today. It can seem overwhelming, but if we all work together and do the right things, we can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Like staying home, staying two meters apart when we're out, and staying informed with current and accurate information at alberta.ca slash COVID-19. A message from the Government of Alberta. This is your sports radio. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Streaming at sportsnet.ca slash 960. And always on the Sportsnet mobile app. Sportsnet 960, Calgary. Back to Pinder and Steinberg. Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, the fan. 22 minutes till 5 o'clock when we'll be joined by Ron McLean for in conversation. Right now, though, a conversation from earlier today as we had a chance to catch up with the assistant coach of the Calgary Flames, Ryan Huska. What has this last month or so consisted of for you as an assistant coach in the NHL? You know, lately, or well, I should say over the last little while, we've had some assignments that Jeff has given us in, in regards to doing a little bit of pre-scout work of, of potential opponents and some of the teams that we're going to be facing or think we're going to be facing whenever if the schedule does resume so we've been doing a little bit of of prep work for what may be coming ahead um, and we're trying to play out a few different scenarios but when this all first started I it went through for me about five to uh, I guess seven days where it it was a a really strange time not really knowing what to do with your time Um, you didn't know if you're coming or going most days and then I finally had to get myself on an actual schedule where um, I would get up at a certain time in the morning and I would do something for a certain time and then I would move on with my day that way. And since I've kind of taken on that type of schedule, 
uh, we're able to keep things almost as normal as you possibly can. But it, it's been an adjustment, that's for sure. When you're going 100 miles an hour and then you come to nothing, um, yeah. it, it was a real challenge for sure. And I'm sure you guys have felt the same. 100%, no doubt about it. And I, the, we, we had Jeff on last week, uh, and, and he was talking about the, the video assignments and how you guys are talking once every four or five days. You guys all go your separate ways, do those assignments, come back and reconvene on that. What, what does that look like? I know you can't necessarily give us details, but, but tell us a little bit more about some of those conversations and those assignments. Yeah, well, like, for example, let's say I might have St. Louis as a team that I'll sit down and watch, and we'll we'll try to break down a bunch of their games and look at things in their game that um, we may like and things that we can potentially steal down the road. Um, so if there are certain things that we want to talk about in regards to how they play, things that we like, things that we don't like, those are all things that we can touch on. So if we get ourselves into a situation down the road, whenever we do come back, if we feel there is something that we can bring in that another team does really well, um, we have some video examples of it. and We can have some really good conversations of some of the really good things that other teams do that we might want to incorporate into what we're trying to get across here. Mm-hmm. Good to have, I would imagine, good to have that communication and be able to get together as a coaching staff every few days just to kind of keep some sort of normalcy, hey? Yeah, you have some conversations, hey, and and we're no different than the players. There's the text threads that go on with some jokes and some of the funny memes that go back and forth. Um, so we have a chance to, to laugh and, and joke with each other a little bit too, but you also have the opportunity to talk a little bit hockey, and that's really what... Um, you know, sometimes you forget that we're still working right now. It's just the situation totally different than anybody's been a part of. So we try to keep the conversation going in regards to, you know, what we want to be like when we come back. And really at the end of the day to make sure we're prepared for whatever that may, that may look like, um, you know, what type of training camp it may look like, mm-hmm. um, how many people do you want? There are all sorts of different things. And it just, I think by getting a little conversation going, it, it it forces you to put some ideas in your mind so that when that time does come, we're going to be ready and we'll have a plan. Does it feel like this is just a year two as an NHL coach for you? Because it's been a uh, rather eventful first couple of years in the league. Yeah, last year. It's funny, Pat, that you say that. Last year, <laughs> it, it seemed like everything was easy until the end of the year. Um, our team was playing well, well right out of the gate. Um, we had a lot of success. A lot of players had um, great years where they had um, personal bests, and it seemed like we were finding ways to win all the time. And it was it was coming pretty easy until, as we know, the end of the year where we where we ran into some troubles towards um, the latter portion of our season and into playoffs. And then this year, um, there's been something pretty much all the time that we've had to deal with. So it, it's been like two totally different seasons. Um, but I guess what you can say is you you can take all the things that have gone on and you can you can put them in your memory bank and there's a lot of learning experiences that we have gone through this year and I think for this year's team I think at the end of the day it's going to make us a better group and that's I think why we're all hoping that we do get an opportunity to come back because we have faced quite a bit of adversity this adversity this year and I think that's going to make us stronger down the road. Flames assistant coach Ryan Huska is with us, and and you you know you talk about this being your second year in the NHL, but there were there were four years of professional hockey that led up to that as a coach, a head coach in the American League before getting this shot in the NHL. 
but but take me back to when you first made the jump into the coaching ranks and and you joined the Kelowna Rockets um going back you know a good good chunk of time ago now you were still uh you were still pretty fresh and and young and uh you you made the decision to get into the coaching ranks at that point did did the NHL seem like a realistic goal to you um i i think once i started to get into coaching i i guess you can say full time coaching um then it was something that was was you know brought back into my mind where it was something that I wanted to do, and I wanted to eventually get to the NHL on a full time basis um, when I first quit playing and I was helping out with some of the minor hockey teams in Kelowna, no, I wasn't thinking about that at all, but um, after some conversations with my wife and realizing that it's something we wanted to try for a few years to see if we could have success with it. Um, the more you got into it, the more you realized pretty quickly that it was still a passion of mine and I wanted to take it as far as I could. And um, I feel like we're, we've been really fortunate to have worked for some great organizations. Uh, Bruce Hamilton took a chance on me in Kelowna when um, everybody in the Western Hockey League at that time was hiring really experienced coaches and he took a chance on me having never really coached before. Um, and then fortunate enough to be a part of the Flames organization moving forward, both in my time in Glens Falls and Stockton, and then and then eventually here. So uh, I really think your journey or the path that you go on has a lot to do with the people that you surround yourself with. And I was fortunate to be a part of, or have been a part of two great organizations. I don't think I ever, I, I've, I've ever heard the story from you in terms of how you made the decision to finish playing and a few years later made the decision to, to get into coaching. Take us, take us through that, going back to kind of the, the turn of the century in the early 2000s. <laughs> sure, no problem. I, I made a deal with my dad when I signed with Chicago um, that if I was still coming up on 25 years old and I was still in the minors basically full-time, then I would pack it in and go back to university, and I would get my degree. So unfortunately, I was uh, not the greatest player in regards to what was sort of the people that were around me at that time, and I made the decision that, hey, I'm going to keep and I'm going to stay true to my words, my dad, and I'm going to go back to school. So I ended up going back to school, and I got my degree in um, business administration with a major in finance. So I was really gearing myself towards um, an investment advising career where I was going to work with RBC Investments. I worked there while I was going to school under Rhonda Heimers, who's still in Kelowna and does an unreal job. Um, And that was going to be what I was going to move on and do. And then one of the scouts or one of the part-time assistant coaches with the Kelowna Rockets took a scouting job um, uh, with an NHL team. So it opened a spot up. And this happened really late before their training or really really late just before the Rockets training camp started. So I thought, Hey, I'll throw my name in there and see if I can help out at all. I thought it would be a lot of fun for me to be able to do that. Um, and I, I interviewed with Mark Habscheid, who was the head coach in Kelowna at the time. And, and I got the job at that point. So it was a part-time role for me, but like with most things, it, it might be part-time, but you feel like you spend your whole time at the rink. So I was going to school full-time, taking six classes a semester because I wanted to get through the schooling as quick as I could. Um, I worked at RBC Investments, and I also was a part-time assistant coach with the Kelowna Rockets. So that's kind of how I got into it after I finished playing hockey, um, and it really came down to a deal that I made with my dad, and that was to go back to school and get my degree, which I'm, I'm happy to say I did.
Well, and I mean, Kelowna worked out pretty well for you. You won, you won a championship, and you spent more than a decade as an assistant and as a head coach in Kelowna. And I, I remember the day that, that you were hired as head coach in Adirondack and, and joined the Calgary Flames organization in the summer of 2014. But I, I, looking back, I, I would imagine that you, you look back and say that was, that was a really good decision. But at the time, I, I wonder how difficult a decision that was for you. Yeah, it was tough. It really, it was tough because, as you said, my kids were young at that time. Um, we were really ingrained in the community there. And, you know, my wife had a lot of friends. She had a, a good little job that she was working with. So it, it was a real challenge for us to say yes at the time. Um, but back to a point earlier in our conversation, um, this is something that we knew, and that was my wife included, that we wanted to try and see how far we could go with it. And the timing was right. We felt really good about the Flames organization, so we, we did make that choice to go. But I think the real challenge is the moving, and it's picking up your kids and, and moving to a, a, a city and then having to pack up again and move somewhere else. That was really the first time we've done it as a family. Um, but one thing I can say about that is my kids are are really great friends. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, when you first move to a new place, of course, they only have each other. So they did a really great job of spending time with each other. And we have three kids that are um, unbelievable to be around. And they make this quarantine time fairly easy in our household because they really do get along really well. He is Ryan Huska, Calgary Flames assistant coach, joining us here on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. So, Coach Huska, you mentioned uh, the family. What have you done in concert over the quarantine? Have you found some series to jump into? Is everyone old enough to uh, find some parallels with the Ozark storyline or not? not? No. You know, my I have uh, 16 and 15-year-old girls. I, I think they'd be fine with it, but I have a 9-year-old boy too. So we're a little bit not quite there for a family <laughs> sit-down for the Ozark thing. But uh, my wife and I watched The Tiger King. I wish I wouldn't have. <laughs> That was one of the potentially worst shows I've ever seen. Um, but it's it's so silly that it sucked you in and it forced me to watch all the episodes. So there's some of that stuff going on. There's a lot of Disney Plus going on in our house. So we've watched a lot of family movies. And then it's um, the silly things with, you know, teenage girls that I do have at that age. There's little TikTok competitions. There's a lot of board <laughs> games going on. So we're trying to keep ourselves as busy as we can. And, um, you know, now with the school going on for the kids, the teachers have done a really good job of making sure they have all their information and assignments up online. So their days are structured similar to ways a school day would be. So it's really at night that we just do a lot of family stuff, which um, you know, considering the circumstances is a pretty cool thing to be able to have. So who is uh, the better teacher and who's the better principal, mom or dad in the Husky house? Um, no question on both of them. Um, mom is the better teacher and the better principal. <laughs> okay. They usually, they usually come to dad to get away with things. Um, and it's usually mom that has the stern hand in this household. It's funny. I mean, this is something that no one would ever want. And, you know, the last thing hockey coaches want to do is have a season taken away. All the work you've poured in, you're, everyone's waiting for a great conclusion or, you know, this this real big test at the end. How are you going to do in the playoffs? That's all poof on pause and maybe gone. Who knows? But at the same time, when was the last time you had this kind of quality time with your family when it wasn't in the middle of the summer? I, you know, 
uh, you certainly have your off seasons, but this this is a, a silver lining of sorts, I imagine. Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, in that regard, for sure. I mean, during the winter time, we spend pretty much half of the month on the road, and I think that's why um, mom is the you know the the heavy hand in the house because she's around with the kids, and a lot of times when when we get home, you want to be. Um, you know, you want to be a little bit more friendly and, and the good guy to them. So, it, you know, sometimes that part is a little bit tougher on mom, but um, it, it is really nice to spend that time. I mean, it, it's a situation where nobody wants to be in, um, but if you're looking for silver linings for for players or staff with young families, um, this would have to be one of them. Your staff's undergone uh, numerous changes uh, throughout the course of the year with the, uh, obviously Jeff coming in as the interim, Bill leaving early in the year. What's that been like to work on a staff that's evolved and then you have sort of Ray Edwards come in to help on power play. I mean, there's, there's been all kinds of moving parts. Can you ever recall a year where you've had turnover in the coach's office like this year? No, I, you know, I haven't for, for me personally, it's, it's something that I don't think anybody expected at the beginning of the year. Of course. I mean, who would, um, but the one thing I can say about our group is that we have a, a coaching staff that's filled with good people, first and foremost, but guys that all work hard and they, they have the same interest in mind. And that's to help if any way we can to get this team to the playoffs and then eventually help this team win the Stanley Cup is the ultimate goal. So we all have that same objective um, in mind. And I think when Ray was brought in, when all the stuff was going on, um, the one thing that made, I think, it a little bit easier, um, everybody was familiar with Ray um, from his development role. I had a lot of time spent with him because he spent quite a bit of time in Stockton with, with our group down there. And all of the coaches um, were aware of him and, and who he was and what he was all about. So that made it a little bit easier for, I think, everybody when he came in. And it almost made it like it was just you're adding a piece from the inside instead of somebody that's totally different from the outside that you would have to really work to get to know. We really had a, a pretty good book on what Ray was all about and the type of person, the coach that he was going to be. Yeah, no question. Uh, last one uh, on uh, for me at this point, just a, a thought on how the team was going because uh, we talked about it and we probably talked too much about it, having to react to every single game, you know, a, a yeah. theoretical 82 times in a regular season, but we just really didn't know what to expect from this group a lot of the year. Although I will say the last sort of three weeks to a month, there seemed to be some consistency and an identity that was forming. Did you feel that way about the group's play heading into the pause? You know what's funny? When you're in it, um, a lot of times we review the games right after the fact. Um, so we'll sit down and we'll watch the video. Um, you know, you'll make your conclusions and your you know, your notes and, and changes that you want to see, and you'll have your talks with your players. Um, but when you've had this time now, I've gone back and watched a lot of our games um, already. And as you mentioned, the last number of games, we were playing really well, and I think by almost taking a step back and, and watching it without the emotion, you realize that we were doing a lot of really good things. Um, some of the frustrating things that were part of our group earlier in the year weren't there as often. And I think that's one of the reasons why we had so much success on the road. And I feel like this team was really going in the right direction. Um, and it does make it difficult that we're sitting waiting right now and we're going to have to get ourselves back up to speed quickly. But it felt like we were starting to get ourselves going in the direction that 
that Jeff and our staff wanted to take this team. And when you, as I mentioned, as you have a little bit of time to go back and watch games without that um, full-on emotion uh, as we have had lately, we did a lot of really good things the last handful of games, last 10 games or so that we played. Um, and I think that was a lot of the, you know, you know the, the tough times or the inconsistent times early in the year. Um, I think our players did a good job of learning from those and they were starting to put things into 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 play and it was showing in our game as we were headed down the stretch. Ryan Husk is with us, the assistant coach of the Calgary Flames on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, the fan. And, and Ryan, for those who don't know, uh, in-game you work a lot with the group of defensemen and you had a couple of new blue liners that, that really only got a cup of tea with the team before everything got shut down and, and put into the situation we're in right now. What were you seeing from a couple of new defenders in Derek Forbert and Eric Gustafson? Yeah, a lot of along along the lines of the same things I was talking about with our team. I was really impressed in watching both those guys play. You know, sometimes when you're in it, somebody will lose a puck battle in the corner or, or will say as a coaching staff, man, that was a soft play. He's got to be harder on the puck in that situation. But you go back and watch um, the games later on with those two guys in them. Um, I thought our team looked better with, with them playing. And they added a little different dynamic to our group where Gus was a guy that um, I feel like the more he would have played for us, I think we would have seen a little bit more offensive ability coming out of him. You look at the games closely and you watch him play. There's a lot of plays that he would try or shots he would take that would just miss or somebody wasn't ready for a certain pass. So I think with him, the more he would have played, I think we really would have seen some of the offensive um, numbers really increase for us. And in turn, I really think that he would have done some damage on our first power play unit. I really do. And when you watch um, Big Derek play, there's nothing flashy or fancy about him, but I have, in just watching the seven games that he played, a really great appreciation for his understanding of the defensive game. Like, he, he doesn't get himself caught. He makes sure he stays on the inside all the time. And, and when you, you couple that with his size and the reach and the length of his stick, he's a hard defender to play against. And I think when those two guys were in the lineup, I really liked the look of our back end and the way we were trending. Well, and and it's it's funny because you know you, you brought those two guys in and and it puts you in a situation with a ton of depth on your back end and some difficult lineup decisions to make on a game by game basis. But yeah. two of the regular defensemen that you've had for most of the year, you've been extremely uh, familiar with from your time in the American League and in Rasmus Anderson and Oliver Shillington. I, I'm just curious, and, and I know we've talked to you about this before, but I'm I'm curious now that we've had a little bit of a time to pause and reset and you've watched some film what you saw from those two guys specifically and, and what type of strides you've seen from them well Rass first I, I think Rass has arrived like I think everybody would probably agree that he's no longer to me in my opinion I, just a younger defenseman that we're, we're trying to break in anymore like I think Rass um, is here and I think you guys would probably agree with me on that comment where um, we all have confidence that he can be used in each and every situation. Um, there's a competitive edge to his game that he hasn't lost from when we first had him in Stockton. And I think he brings to the rink, brings to the ice surface uh, a swagger. Um, you know, there's something about him where uh, he either rubs you the wrong way if you're an opponent or he's a guy that you know is going to be there <laughs> when the games are on the line. Uh, and that's what you want to see from him. So I feel like he now really believes that he's not just a uh, 
maybe a five six guy on the team anymore. I think he has higher expectations for where he should be slotted on our back end, and that's something that we're really excited about. Now, Oliver, I think when you look at his body of work over the last couple of years and this year in particular, I still think he's made huge improvements in his overall game. When we watch him defend, um, when you watch the gaps that he plays within the neutral zone or leaving the offensive zone, um, how close he stays to the play, he's done a real good job of learning how to be a, a good defender. You know, the one thing that we want to keep working on with, with Oliver is, is play with the puck. Sometimes, um, you know, whether it's overhandling it at the wrong time or you seeing that first option, making that first play, that to me is the next step in his game before he's able to arrive um, like Rass is right now. So I think Oliver's very close. There's a couple little things that he needs to continue to work on and grow with, and I know he's going to do that moving forward. And I still, when I, I look at both these guys, um, but Oliver more specifically, we've talked about his name a lot here because he came to the American League so young, mm-hmm. um, but he is so young still. And I think there's a, a lot of positives in his game right now, and I really do think of him as a guy that's going to continue to get better the more he understands situational play the better he's going to get. And I think, as, I, as we've talked about before, they're, they're two really good young defensemen um, in our group that I think are really going to push for more moving forward. And the final one would just be on a guy that, again, you're, you're quite familiar with, and that is Andrew Mangiapane. It's, it's almost a shame. Well, it is a shame that the season had to be put on pause because, boy, was he really starting to pop before mm-hmm. things got shut down. How, how happy are you to see the success that he's been able to have? I'm really happy. Like, he's one of the guys that you really do pull for. I mean, you pull for all your players, but you can say there's a soft spot for some of them for sure, and you want to see certain guys have success because how hard they work and how much time they put into their game to try to play the right way for their team and for themselves. And I remember in Stockton, his first year that he came down with us, there was a lot of talk about where are we going to play him? Um, you know, of course, we talked to the development group. We know what he's all about. We know we can put up points, but we made a decision early on that if he's going to be any good for us here, um, he has to play with the off- offensive guys. So we put him with uh, Matt Fratton and Lyndon Bay. And um, very early in that season, he really took off. Um, and we realized we had a pretty good player on our hands. And, we, you know, you kept sending up reports that this guy's going to be a good player. I love everything about him. You guys are going to love him when you get him because <laughs> he just works so hard and he's in the guts of the game all the time. And size doesn't matter for him, and that's the beauty of it. You know, you, we always talk about wanting to have the big guys that can skate. They make you harder to play against. But if you're a smaller guy and you're as competitive as Andrew is, um, there is no difference in our opinion in regards to size because he's he does things that a, a six foot four, six foot five guy will do and he knows how to get himself to the net and he has a passion to to generate offense and and I think that's it's really gonna come out further as we move forward with him. Like he's a he's a really good player and I think he's a real great teammate and he's one guy for sure that I'm very happy to see have success. And coach on that AHL front, I mean, you, you do have that unique perspective of, of seeing this organization from the AHL level and now on the coaching staff of the NHL side, how has uh, the communication been with Kale McLean taking over for the past two seasons and what sort of insights can you lend either him or I guess Jeff or Bill before him about, uh, I guess, players up and down? 
Well, that I think was a bit of a perk um, last year for sure for Bill, because Bill was new coming into the organization. So, he, you know, Bill always does his homework on, on everything and everyone. So he, he had a pretty good handle on the people in our organization. Um, you know, but there's sometimes when there's a guy that comes up or he really wants to know, can I put this guy in that situation? I think it helped having that, um, you know, me having a relationship and really knowing what these guys were all about. And the same with Jeff. So now Jeff's seen all these guys because he was all, he came in the same time as Bill. Um, but because he was kind of all similar time, Kale was new when they all came in, there's a, a good, you know, communication between Jeff. There was good communication between Bill and Kale. There's really good communication between Jeff and Kale. And uh, I feel fortunate that Kale and I can pick up the phone and just BS whenever and talk hockey, talk anything really about what we're seeing, what's going on in the game, and then just talk about life in general, I guess. So we have a good relationship, and I think that really helps in regards to um, players knowing what we're expecting out of them. Um, Kale knows exactly how to push him and where we're trying to get those players, and I, I think he's done an excellent job over the last couple of years of making sure guys are, are ready to play when called upon, and um, he's, you know, he's, he's at a position where... I think he's going to excel for a number of years. It's Ryan Huska, Calgary Flames assistant coach, with us earlier today on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery is available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. All of our guests today, Mark Kastelik of the Calgary Hitman, Jeff Snyder from Elevate Lacrosse, and, of course, Ryan Huska of the Calgary Flames, all up at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Okay, here's the schedule for tonight. Up next in conversation with Ron McLean, 6 o'clock, Game 3 of the 2015 American League Divisional Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and Texas Rangers. Jays send Marco Estrada to the mound, trailing two games to none, so they need a win at the ballpark in Arlington tonight. And following that, Game 3 of the 2004 Stanley Cup Final, Calgary Flames and Tampa Bay Lightning Series tied at one game apiece. For Pinder and for Logan Gordon, my name is Pat Steinberg. Have a wonderful rest of your Wednesday. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Pinder and Steinberg Sports. Sportsnet 960 The Fan.